0: Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere, And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you.
4: Good morning.
0: This is your wake-up call. The year is 2021. It is no longer safe to transmit information. Phones, computers, and satellites are all vulnerable. But there is a solution. Your storage Storage capacity. capacity. I can carry nearly 80 gigs of data in my head. Input the data into the brain of a human courier. Like Johnny Mnemonic. Hit me. How do you fit all that in your head anyway? I had to dump a chunk of long-term memory. You had to dump a chunk of what? My childhood. What are you doing? Making a long-distance phone call. I have got the goods, Ralphie. Now I just want to get them out of my head. Now. In a future... We locked on him. ...where those who control the information... ...control the world. I've been charged with recovering the head of the mnemonic courier. Everyone wants what is stored in Johnny's head. Uh, Double cheese anchovies?
1: are You're waiting
0: for me, Ralphie. Time is running out. I'm a dead man if I don't get this out of my head. If I can get it out. How? A cranial drill and a pair of forceps. For the future's most wanted fugitive. you can't shoot me
5: not in the head
0: johnny mnemonic
3: welcome to the projection booth i'm your host mike white joining me once again is mr dwayne swazinski
2: hey mike thanks for having me i'm thrilled to be here for sci-fi july this is exciting
3: Also back in the booth is Ms. Dahlia Schweitzer. I'm so excited to be here. We conclude Sci-Fi July with a look at Robert Longo's Johnny Mnemonic. Released in 1995, the film was based on a story and adapted by William Gibson and stars Keanu Reeves as the titular Mr. Mnemonic, a data courier with an implant in his cranium. He's hired by a trio of scientists who overload his hard drive with the cure for a disease of the future we will be talking about at least three versions of this film from the theatrical version to the extended cut to the recent black and white version so if you don't want anything ruined i suggest you track down at least one of those and watch it before proceeding you have been warned so dwayne when was the first time you saw johnny mnemonic and what did you think
2: What's funny is my first experience with this story was not the movie; it was actually the short story. My father, I used to when I was nine years old, he used to hang in his shopping, you know, place, and he'd buy back issues of Omni, which is where the story first appeared. I would read this. My nine year old brain was way too young to comprehend any of this stuff. Like it was a great magazine, but I was like, "What is this stuff?" And I remember. Remember, you you sent me the um, the scan of the actual story. I remember that, that image vividly, like that weird double face thing. I thought, oh, my God, that's what this was, you know. And, again, I'm not going to claim I was nine years old and read it and was and got it. I was a dipshit when I was nine. But um, that was my first exposure to this story. So, when I got years later, I saw this on VHS when it came out. Not in the theater. I saw it. it came out on home video. At the time, I was living somewhere without a car and I had no life. So, I was reading everything I could. And this is one of them. And I remember it being, like, fun. It was interesting. It was, you know, kind of a fun, zippy science fiction movie. It didn't really resonate with me until years later when I saw a trailer for The Matrix. And I thought, didn't I see this already? But, you know, as we all know, The Matrix is very different. from But but it had the elements. It was like, okay, Keanu Reeves, he's a hacker guy. He's being chased by killers. You know, it's this whole, you know. But I really thought, didn't we do this already four years ago? So I was kind of down in The Matrix before I saw it because of Johnny Mnemonic. <laughs> so, but yeah, I enjoyed it fine back then. And Dolly, how about yourself?
5: Johnny Mnemonic is one of those movies that it kind of feels like it's always had a place in my subconscious. Like, I can't remember the first time that I watched it. I just kind of always remember having seen it. I'm guessing I probably saw it in college, maybe not that long after it came out. Like, it feels like it's from that cultural moment of you know the mid-1990s where there were just kind of you know all these different movies 12 monkeys safe Todd Haynes is safe this sort of like dystopic kind of moment and then as you know I'm a big Cindy Sherman fan and she Robert Longer was her partner for a long time and so I'm imagining that I also saw it out of that curiosity but I it's weird because like there's certain movies that I can remember the first time that I saw them and with this one I know that I've you know, i seen it at least once before re-watching it for this podcast, but I couldn't tell you. It's just kind of like with The Matrix. I don't remember the first time I saw that movie either. I don't remember the first time I saw Blade Runner. But it's kind of like they all just have a spot in the same like file folder in my brain.
3: I remember when this movie came out that I was relentlessly making fun of the title just because... Who knows what mnemonic means amongst the great unwashed. And I just kept coming up with other titles for this movie instead. (laughs) Johnny automatic, Johnny, yeah, (laughs) Johnny Montana, just like coming up with all of these different things, which is ironic since he was Johnny Utah. But gosh, I guess Keanu's played Johnny quite a few times, uh, John wick, Johnny Utah, now he's Johnny Smith or mnemonic in this one
0: just Um, johnny mike just just johnny Johnny. who the fuck are you anyway johnny johnny who just johnny
5: is there a mnemonic device in the movie
3: not that i know of no just that he remembers things very
5: weird title yes because yeah i feel like there is no mnemonic device in the movie so i don't know why i mean I meant to read the short story before we recorded, and I did not. But I don't know if in the short story, maybe it's more clear.
2: I no. did. And that's not there. I mean, I think it's it's a clever title as far as meaning. Like it means how to remember something, but doesn't right. that doesn't really have any relevance in the actual plot of the story. Right. You're right. It's a clever. That's all Gibson, you know, but it doesn't really quite hang with what's happening.
5: I'm just thinking about the movie and it's like, he doesn't really remember anything. I mean, literally because he doesn't remember his childhood memories because they've been removed from his brain, but then he doesn't have access to the privileged information that's stored in his brain. So I feel like the only thing he remembers is like the access code or whatever to like, you know, get it out of his brain. The whole point is that he doesn't know what's in his head because it's like separate from him. So again, it is just, it's a very strange title.
2: Yeah. It's more like Johnny flash drive, right?
3: Yeah, exactly.
5: Johnny gigabyte.
2: (laughs)
3: Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny to hear him talk about like, oh yeah, I've got 120 gigabytes in my head. And I'm like, this flash drive right here, this is 40 gigabytes.
2: Yeah. You can fit this
3: in your brain pretty darn easy. and.
5: And this is one of the things that, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about it, but I love movies set in the future, which is where we are living now, you know, and so it's kind of fun to see what people in 1995 thought that 2021 was going to look like. And so, of course, in 1995... You know, even just one gigabyte felt like a lot. Of, I mean, it was just oh, yeah. like, oh my oh, God, yeah. that's so much space. What could, you know, because we had like floppy disks. Right. So it's just kind of funny to think that, you know, the movie is full of those sort of funny contradictions where it's like, it's trying to be like super futuristic, but then there's like the, you know, it's like play it on your VCR. But again, I love this sort of the time capsuleness of it. It's both a time capsule for 1995, but it's also a time capsule of what 1995 thought our present was going to look like.
2: Yeah, right. no one predicted the use of high-definition screens in the future. Like, it's all so low-res. That's you know, all <laughs> cracks me up. Well, the screen is so, like, like 70s ATM-level screens. It's it's yeah. great. No exactly. one predicted, oh, shit, we'd have great high-definition screens in the future, you know, and, but we wouldn't have, you know, these wild fashions. I mean, honestly, you told me in 1995 what our current year 2023 looks like, I would not predict this. It's all the same. It's the same thing, except for know. models, cars, and technology. That's about it. We're the same. It looks the same, essentially. No, it's
5: been a real bait and switch. I was thinking about, you know, the 30-year anniversary of Office Killer is in yeah. 2027. And, like, 2027 sounds like a fake year. 2023 sounds like a fake year. And, like, we're living in 2023. And, yes, everything, I mean, it's like, you know, we have cell phones and they're smaller, but other than that, it's like, I don't feel like day-to-day life has changed that much. The idea of technology and like the fusion of technology and prosthesis is interesting, you know, because yeah. you kind of, I, we sort of kind of have that to a certain extent, but even then it's like, we don't have that much virtual reality and don't have flying cars. And it's like, we don't look like Blade Runner. It does. It feels a little bit like a letdown.
2: We're not wearing, like, you know, uh, you know, see-through ponchos with bikinis underneath. I mean, I mean, fashion comes and goes. It's repeating all the, the previous 20, 20th century fashions. I mean, we're not really any great strides aren't being made, you know, over the future. No,
5: we have mom jeans. Right. right. You know, right. we're <laughs> dressing like the 90s again. So, after I
3: finally got to see this one, which I probably, like you, Dwayne, saw on VHS, and...
5: Oh, definitely. I,
3: I kind of fell in love with this movie. I really have a penchant for cheesy sci-fi movies and this just fits the bill and my wife thank goodness she also really loves cheesy sci-fi movies so i've seen this movie i don't know how many times over the years wow cool just yeah it's one of the mainstays of the house to the point where she was just like Really excited that I was going to be rewatching Johnny Mnemonic last night. And
5: what about Hackers? Because to me, this oh, I love is like, Hackers. Yes, this, is, this, this should be like a double feature with Hackers.
3: Oh yeah, yeah. yeah well, totally especially the the way and we're kind of introduced to the movie through Internet Twenty Twenty One. You know, back before we this is nineteen ninety five. Like you said, this is before we're throwing around the word Internet like crazy. Yeah. And now here it is. This is the visualization of the internet which is hilarious because we all know it's just a series of tubes
4: the internet is not something that you just dump something on it's not a big truck it's, it's a series of tubes
3: And right, yeah this is makes it out to be like super cool but yeah the whole vr thing is amazing the vr thing is probably my one of my favorite parts of the movie just to see keanu opening up all of these things and doing the, the mimicry of hacking yes. into the system and the the fakie hands and everything and these the special effects are just so funny because they're so rudimentary and look like they're right out of like amazing stories or something just we are you know <laughs> right. we're, we're two years past jurassic park but it does not look like it
5: but the production design
3: production design the production is amazing
5: design is i mean that is just next mm-hmm. level like i wouldn't so I watched the the black and white version, which I feel like I'm taking things out of order, you know, but this mm. was my first time. I don't remember the black and white just came out. Yes. Right? How, I don't know how recently it came out, but this was my first time watching it, it, the new release, the new black and white version. And, you know, I'm still like, I mean, I we can talk about the differences between the black and white and the, the one that was originally released, but I wanted to like take a screenshot of just, it was like every other frame was just, I mean, just to the yeah. look of it, you know, or, yeah. and he's got like the headset on and like, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, everything looks amazing.
2: Well, he does. I mean, even like the black and white version maybe was, oh my God, this is a Robert Longo film. Okay, now I get it. Like, it seemed like he was lost in the theatrical release, but this was like, holy, it was a revelation. I was like, wow, oh, yeah. this is what he said, you know, it was like, this is AlphaVille meets Blade Runner. This is so yeah. cool looking. I mean, every frame is, yeah, you're right. Every other frame was like, I put that in my wall. I, yes. you know, love that. That's a great those images, it's funny. it's funny. It's lost when it's in color. It's lost when it's in like you can't see through the kind of the gloss of mid '90s Hollywood. You know, it's kind of hard to see. Yeah, I think
5: you're right. The the Alphaville Blade Runner fusion is much more obvious with the yeah. with the black and white. And I'm still not sure that he had like. I think it could have worked with the muted tones of Blade Runner, mm-hmm. but if I had to choose between. You know, what was released in ninety-five and the black and white, the black and white is is better. I still missed a little bit of the color, but mm-hmm. you get the, the neo noir style really hits yeah. you over the head with the black and white. Yeah, Which totally. I think is what he wanted.
3: The color version reminds me of things like Judge Dread or Demolition Man, where it's kind of more candy oh, yeah. colored. Right. And you know, it's a little bit more in your face, which I think mm-hmm. is what the studio was probably going for. It feels much more like mm-hmm. it's a comic book.
5: Oh, that's totally what they wanted. I mean, they wanted, you know, speed <laughs> meets computers.
2: Very wired, like circa 1993, 94. I mean, that whole, like, it was a whole explosion of, like, oh, the world discovers the internet, or back it was called cyberspace You know, back then. You're right, the internet really wasn't commonly used until later. But uh, I felt like, oh, this whole crazy new world. I mean, to me, it was like Lawnmower Man was like, okay, okay. Oh, okay. Boy, it was yeah. like, you know, like, wow, okay, what what can we do with this thing? And they didn't quite figure it out, but it was, you know, pretty revolutionary for the time, as I recall. It had fuck all to do with the Stephen King story, <laughs> but, but, <you> know, <laughs> but <laughs> still.
3: Well, and Gibson did a, did a great job of adapting his own story. I mean, it's just like a little yeah, bit yeah. of the bare bones here and there, but he took it and he took it into some very interesting places. And I'm not sure how much of that was him, how much was being you know, impressed upon them by the studio. But I definitely saw a lot of his ideas in here and just saw the ability for him to take, you know, I listened to the story and the story altogether took 45 minutes to do. And this just takes that and explodes it out into so many different areas. And I thought he did a great job with it.
2: Gibson's style is very impressive because it's it's very hard-boiled. It's like a fusion of hard-boiled noir with science fiction, but like you can't speed read it because you'll miss something very important. Every line has like all these things kind of baked into it. You have to like slow down, understand what he's talking about. It's, oh, my God, this is a really cool concept. He's done like two or three words. Even with like the, what's he called, the, the mono molecular the strand of the, the kind of the, the razor wire that cuts through flesh, you know, and bone. It's just, it's like three or four words in the story, but it's like, oh, God, okay, that's cool. I mean, he has a knack for that. I'm a speed reader, so Gibson to me sometimes is like, I miss so much the first read. like, oh, wait, slow down, Dwayne, go back. <laughs> go back and read this thing and really appreciate what he's doing there. And it's funny, translating from the story, it's really, it feels so fresh and wild. When it reached the screen, not so much sometimes. It's funny, it kind of loses something. I'm not sure what it is. Like, because maybe it's your brain is fleshing it out in a cool way that no filmmaker could capture. Like the magnetic dog twins, you know, the mm-hmm. bodyguards of the Udo Kier character. And the story is only a few sentences about them, but like they have a whole like backstory implied. Whereas in the film, they're kind of comical, they're kind of jokes, you know, like they're just goofy, tall, you know androgynous bodyguards i don't know it was the story kind of makes that feel fresh and really transgressive then the film loses that kind of
5: it makes me really sad when i um you know was reading about sort of all the drama that Longo was having with the studio and the fighting and like i read dolph lundgren had a much larger part And the studio basically cut it down to, you know, the handful of scenes like he just like he shows up to kill somebody and then, you know, cut. Um, But he actually had like a story and there was a scene where he was preaching in his church to like an audience of naked women who were all suffering from the nerve attenuation syndrome. And I I get the impression that the nerve attenuation syndrome was, was larger in the original version of the film than it is now, which is also interesting because, you know, I, I wrote about viruses. And so that's sort of like, I'm fascinated by viruses and the idea of, you know, I mean, I think the movie is very much about bodies and technology, but it's sort of like, you know, the idea is, is that the NAS, as i understand it comes from exposure to too much technology which of course also has profound implications for the way we live in 2023 you know but this idea of the dynamic between the physical body and then technology and sort of how the two were really not compatible is sort of like this whole theme and oh, yeah, yeah it just makes me sad because i wish i could have i wish i could have seen the original version of this movie
2: mm-hmm. yeah i wish i could have seen the original like 1.5 million dollar black and white ultra low budget version of this that Longo had in mind. It sounded me, yeah. seeing the black and white version made me think, oh, that's what he's going for. That would have been so goddamn cool. Like just like I think all the things that all the missteps you see in this movie are all about Hollywood interference. Like, oh, we need a love interest. We need like, you know, Keanu has to punch harder, not 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 Jane the assassin. Like it's all this like sort of every executive has their own like, little checklist of things. Oh, we need this, 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 and this. And those are the things. That kind of ruined, I think, what what Longo was going for in Gibson. You know, I think they really had a cool vision in mind and they were burdened with this huge budget. They had, you know, sort of in this, these sort of creative choices that didn't serve it well.
5: He even had like a different soundtrack that he wanted to use. Like, like there was a band that he wanted to use and the studio said, no, they wanted more traditional action. I mean, I feel like he really wanted to make a completely different movie.
2: Yeah. i mean it's funny this i wasn't really familiar with Longo's work before we re- 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 see this movie again and kind of diving into his work uh, and i saw your interview mike which we'll we'll be hearing later in this podcast just amazing like this guy has just an amazing career all the ingredients were there for a spectacular science fiction movie that would feel so fresh and different but i think it was not you know allowed to be
5: he never made another movie right
3: as far I as i so. know no just shorts yeah, he directed yeah. one of my most favorite shorts that I'd ever played on MTV, the one with Steve Buscemi, who, quoting <laughs> the lyrics to songs to this very great. tall woman
5: there. And if you want to dance, get into the groove, you can dance if you want to. Dance, 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 dance. They're dancing, they're dancing in the streets. I want to change my clothes, my hair, my face. You know, dancing in the dark. It's a disco inferno here. Hey, let's twist and shout like we did last summer. Shake it to the left, shake it to the right. I want to dance with somebody. Do you think I'm sexy? I want your sex. Sex and drugs and rock and roll. Boom, boom, boom. Let's go back to my room. When I get this feeling, it's like sexual healing. Sexual healing, it's good for you. This place is slamming. Your face is jamming. Let's get to ramming. Is this love? I want to know what love is. Tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me. Who do you love? I think we're alone now. Come on, baby. Shake your love. Love is all you need. Be my baby. You're so emotional. Chamon, Chamon. Who's bad?
4: Beat it.
3: I still quote from that stupid short <laughs> all the time.
5: I haven't seen it. Is it online?
2: It is online. It's
3: okay, on Vimeo. I'll, I'll send you
5: a it. link for it and I'll okay. definitely
3: be posting that with this episode. Yeah. That
2: was great. I forgot about that until until you mentioned it in your interview. I went, I searched for it. I'm like, oh my God, I remember this totally. That bumper MTV would run. They have run some great creative bumpers. Like they would do some weird shit, which I love about MTV back in the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. Really there was no edgy. reason for it, but it just was yeah. there. It was great.
3: It's funny because some of the computer animation in johnny Melmonic reminded me of some of the liquid tv stuff that they were doing on mtv and i was like oh yeah this is some pretty cool stuff like it's kind of cheesy and stuff to look at now but i kind of like it i like the Mm -hmm. longer keanu reeves with the tall head and the tall hair he looks almost like a pencil (laughs) with an eraser at the top and just him they're like finding that image at the end and it's the the ghost in the machine and he's the way that he's you know wrestling with it and everything. I'm like, this yeah. is kind of cool. like I yeah. kind of like this, yeah, no, it was fun. <laughs> yeah that scene of Dolph in front of his church that was shot, but it was not a bunch of writhing naked women, unfortunately. so it was more ah, people standing it. with candles, <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry to break it to you.
5: <laughs> uh, no no, but I read that there was supposed to be that scene, yeah, but you're saying that it wasn't that it was edited out. it was that they were not even allowed to shoot it.
3: No, no, they shot it, but it wasn't, oh. it wasn't women writhing in there or just normal people with candles.
5: So you know, I read that in one of the articles that you sent. Okay. It was supposed to be, um, Dolph and, and naked women. I'll see if I can find it. Okay. Um,
3: but yeah, they but, shot a version of that scene is what I'm okay. trying to say. Yeah.
5: I, oh, I, I see. I see. I see. Yeah. Okay.
3: Yeah. Dolph suffers a lot. And we'll talk about this more in the second half of the show. He suffers a lot and, uh, beat Takeshi suffers a lot as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's from a longer version, extended version. And for the longest time you could only find it from Japan. So it had Japanese Mm -hmm. subtitles burned into it. And I was like, okay, did they make this just for the Japanese audience? Because B Takeshi's much bigger presence over there. It's kind of like. That whole thing with Asian characters that show up in Marvel movies, and they have these huge extended parts when you watch the Chinese version. Like, yeah. oh, this doctor saves Iron Man's life, and then does this, and blah blah blah. And it, or, I, actually, I think it's uh, Don Cheadle's life. And I'm yeah. like, okay, yeah, that's nowhere in this version, but it no. plays well
2: overseas. And was actually, I, I loved it. Mean, Takeshi's role was great. I, I wanted more of that. I mean, I believe really that's a compelling story. Actually, more compelling than any other story we're seeing. It's yeah. like he's grieving. He's trying to hold on to his company. It's like a, it's really a human. But it's, you, you see glimpses of it in the theatrical version. You know, it's hinted at. He comes off as just kind of an, an ass, you know. But but it's like it's really compelling if you kind of think about it. And like watch some bits of the extended cut that amplify that As A scene of him. In his daughter's room, surrounded by stuffed animals, it's like, oh my god, that's you know, that's heartbreaking. It's mm-hmm. also very Blade Runner ish too, with the you know the toys and the and sort of you know. But it was like a wow, a nice nod, but also an emotional moment that I thought was missing. Want to see that?
3: And I think one of the first times you see him, his daughter is there with him, and then he yeah. turns off the hollow program, so you realize that she's actually not there. Yeah, so, yeah. It's, he has a real arc, like of all yeah. the characters. Oh, yeah. I mean, every he's got an arc. Jane's got an arc. Johnny's got an arc. Mm, that's about it, really. You yeah, know, the, but all of the side characters, I think, are fantastic. I love the Dolph london character, even he though
2: yeah.
3: he's not in it very much. I love Henry yeah. Rollins when he shows up. The Ice Tea is always great. What's that?
5: The Ice Tea character. I was agreeing.
3: Oh yeah. I love the whole idea of these low techs and just, uh, I mean, they're very much like those underground dwellers in Demolition Man, you know, but thank goodness we don't have Dennis Leary there to do like one of the stand-up bits while we're doing it.
2: Ice <laughs> and T also is- Ice-T the same year, Tank Girl came out. Ice-T as well as an underground dweller, this sort of like underworld, you know, freedom fighter, basically, yeah. playing the same role, essentially, one in a kangaroo getup and Tank Girl, and here he's more of, you know, more of a human being. But it was, yeah, it was kind of a good year for Ice-T playing the Freedom Fighter.
5: Speaking of the year, I had messaged Mike about this when I was doing the kind of the reading for the podcast. And I'm always fascinated by this, this sort of like synchronicity that happens with movies. Because it's like if a bunch of similar movies are released around the same time, you know, they're not copying each other because it means that they all probably went into pre-production around the same time. And so there was really this moment in 1995 where you get Tank Girl, Strange Days, Hackers, 12 yeah. Monkeys, The City of Lost Children, and Johnny Mnemonic. And that yeah. like all comes out in the same year. I mean, it's just it's like this really crazy, like, dystopia, cyberpunk, end of the world apocalypse, you know, future like this weird kind I don't know. It just really makes you wonder, like, okay, what was happening in 1995? <laughs> you got Judge
2: Dredd, too. Judge Dredd was there as well and that same thing. A future, yeah. you know, weird dystopia, you know, it was that, and same kind of color palette, same kind of feel. Yeah, you're right. Something in the water, right? That <laughs> they're making all these similar movies.
3: Well, I yeah. wonder if it was that we were four years away from the, well, I hate to say the millennium changing because it didn't Y2K. actually change till 2001. Right, right. But yes, we were four years away from Y2K, basically, at this point. Yeah,
5: that's true. And then I mean, this is I talk about this in my going viral book that 1995 was a pivotal year for viral movies. And that there is actually like a a clear chronology. But 1995 was when Outbreak came out. And you can kind of trace this through line from like, you know, Richard Preston's article in The New Yorker in 1992. I mean, it's like because again, I'm fascinated by the way these sort of cultural things happen because they never happen in a vacuum but it's funny that it's almost like in a parallel lane you have these virus movies where it's like a cyber virus of some kind happening yeah Yeah, it's just it's just interesting because it's like okay what was happening off screen to fuel all these so similar movies
2: a lot of this is about what's the mirror of what uh, people in 1995 are concerned about and worried about mm-hmm. I mean, this is a total reflection of that's what science fiction is right what the yeah. person the people creating this in the time period what their concerns about are concerned about and that's viruses technology running rampant corporations right. going muck. I mean it's all there you know it's it's funny how that's you know it's more of a time it's more of a time capsule than it is a forward-thinking you know mm-hmm. piece of art <laughs> it's really a, a piece of history Probably.
5: yeah it's not to keep referencing office killer but we like one of the things <laughs> no, in office killer right. which came out two years later you know the 1990s were when the internet was starting to become a thing yeah. right and then there was this fear of bodies disappearing and it's interesting because it's sort of there you can see parallels to like tv shows like the outer limits which were reflecting fears of television right and the idea yeah, of the yeah. television in the home and like You know, bringing that specific kind of technology into the home. And now in the 90s, it's a similar kind of fear of technology, but it's about the Internet. And how is the Internet going to change the world? And yeah, it's. I mean, this is I think this is why I get really excited about movies is to see like how they reflect, you know, kind of what's in our psyche at that moment.
2: I'm, I'm wondering now, like, we were all freaking out about AI, especially Hollywood writers are freaking out about it. So I'm waiting for the wave of AI movies to come, right? Yep. <laughs> Next, Just
5: give it a couple of years. Right?
2: right? <laughs> You're going to see in, in 2025, I'm sure, these AI run-on-muck movies, we'll see a ton of those. Because we're all freaked out about it.
3: Yeah, we've, we've seen. Kind
5: of, we've already had them with, like, 2001. Yeah, that's you know? true. So it's like.
2: Yeah.
5: Right. We're
3: Horrible one with Johnny Depp with um the Singularity. I can't oh. remember the name of that one, but yeah,
2: yeah this yeah. one
3: was it was funny. Rewatching this last night and uh, Takeshi, the character Takeshi, played by Beat Takeshi, Takeshi. <laughs> Takahashi. There
2: we go, Takahashi. Sorry, Takahashi yeah.
3: character played by <laughs> played by Beat Takeshi. There we go. His whole puppet thing that he was doing with the white guy with the voice and the face and everything. And and he's just moving his hand. I'm just like, okay, I could pretty much do that now. Like you can go out. I mean, I could go out right now and Mm -hmm. replace my voice on this podcast with a computer generated Mike white voice. I've taught an AI to listen to my voice enough that it does my voice. I could have an avatar that looks like me or looks like somebody else. And we could start to do this. So it's possible to have these kind of things. It takes a little bit longer. I can't do it on the fly and respond like, like that, but right get cool. you know, give it six months.
2: Well, all these podcast listeners had no idea. Actually, we're watching Mike. He's on a beach now sipping a margarita. He's actually not even talking to us. It's his computer talking to the two of us. So it's weird, but it's already I thought taken over. you signed an
3: NDA. Oh, sorry. <laughs>
2: sorry, Mike. Whoops. Sorry. Too much behind the scenes.
3: It is remarkable to see because you laugh at, or I laugh at some of the graphics and stuff. And then I looked at the rest and I'm just like, yeah, yeah. Like, How important the web is, how important it is to try to find these things. I mean, of course, it's funny that they're sending faxes rather than emails, those kind of things, but you're they're right there. It's like, we are right on the edge of what is coming, you know, even to point from earlier, as far as the matrix, like there are things in the matrix that are rather quaint, but then there are other things where you're like, yeah, oh yeah, that's kind of the way it is. That's the way that we're headed with Um, some of these things. I mean, once Duolingo gets better, it'll just download the language into your brain.
0: I know Kung Fu.
3: It'd be fantastic. I, That'd be great,
2: actually. I love that. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd download it in a heartbeat. I'd download it. Like, able people speak and read French in a heartbeat, I'm doing it just now. I'd pay for that in a heartbeat.
3: Yeah. That's what I loved about that movie, uh, Code 46, where you could catch a virus that would give you the um. abilities to do things. And it's like, okay, so that kind of mixes what you're talking about, Dahlia. The, yeah, having the yeah. virus and the technology be the exact same thing. I mean, the people that caught that virus to learn how to speak Japanese or whatever wouldn't know what they were actually saying. They would just say words <laughs> and the Japanese would come out. But I love that kind of crossing of that barrier. And this whole movie is so much about the barriers, especially between the flesh and the technology, and that you've got two main characters between Jane and Johnny. And I definitely think they made sure to change what was her name? Mirror.
2: A Molly millions. In the Molly story.
3: millions. Yeah. To change her to Jane so that she kind of matches Johnny a little bit more with those J's and that they're both damaged goods. You know, she's yeah. got the implant. She's got the disease and then he's got his whole problem going on with his head. So neither one of these people can really walk down the street without one holding the other up. They're constantly trying to like revive yeah. one person or the other because they're both screwed up.
2: So, to me, she flashes a flashlight in his eyes. He freaks out, has a fit, you know, and has the rest. She loses, you know, her ability to sort of just walk. So, they are right. They're both sort of walking wounded, you know, going through this adventure together. It's interesting. But the story the is very different. The story is the, the narrator, you know, Johnny, is just a, a courier. She's the badass. You know, they oh, give yeah. Keanu the badass stuff in the movie, but it's not that's not in the story. I mean, it's Molly Millions is the one who just has all the gear, all the all the moves you know the skill the training but you tell she's damaged but it's still you know very different i guess god forbid we have you know a, a woman being badass you know <laughs> <In the> 1995 <laughs> movie it's just like okay right
5: but do we know if that was the studio or if that was long ago Don't that's
2: know. a good question with this movie i know that i read that william gibson didn't want to sign over the rights to molly millions because she was in neuromancer and other part of that trilogy so he wanted to create a different character to fill her role. You know, I thought that that's that sort of that function in this movie. But yeah, I'm not sure who whose call it was to like give, you know, Keanu more of the fighting moves, you know, and he's more badass than his version of the short story for sure. Even that, though, too, it's interesting. Like, I can't help but watch his character through the lens of Neo and John Wick, which oh. are super amazing battles. This was kind of like, kind of lame. He's not, <laughs> all the fighting is like, sort of like, Really pedestrian, right? I remember my being too harsh. I don't know. It felt like it was okay action, nowhere near the Matrix, nowhere near John Wick, which is just an action orgy. Mm
5: -hmm. Well, I think it's also worth talking about the fact that his acting was really slammed in this movie. Yeah. And especially given you know, given hindsight, we know that Keanu can act. So it makes you think that the woodenness was maybe intentional that this was part of you know that he and again maybe it worked maybe it didn't but that he was trying to play almost as kind of like robotic character and so maybe the stiffness was intentional yeah. you know, that it was like that he wasn't fully human kind of like there are other characters in the movie who aren't fully human right it's like a spectrum you know with the Dolph Lundgren one being sort of like the extreme and this is what I, I mean, I was kind of wondering, like when I was watching it, it's like, is it a bad movie? Like, I, I'm like a little bit on the fence, you know, like and again, it's it's really hard to say because there's so many variables. Like the production design is amazing. Check. No question. Mm-hmm. But then it's like, OK, well, the script obviously has some flaws. But is that Longo's fault or Gibson's fault or the studio's fault? Oh, and, you know, yeah. he who seems really wooden. But was that on purpose or was that bad acting or was that bad directing? I don't know. What do you guys think?
2: I wonder the same thing because, I mean, the one thing that's unanswered is like, okay, so you have a bunch of your memory dumped. His childhood, entire childhood has gone. It's gone. Does yeah. that result in that being wooden? It's like sort of not him. Like, you're right. That's a great point. But it's never quite, you don't actually know for sure that's what it is. You know, people right. assume that he's acting. I think you're right. I think actually it was a, a intentional choice to do that because he comes off as very much like, almost going kind to of spoil Brett. You know, I want room service. I want my... Sh- I mean, that's like... <laughs> that you know, he, line
5: he, was it's, hilarious. It's
2: great. You know, that, but it speaks to like, okay, here's a kid who doesn't have a childhood in their memory. Like we all do. Like we all have our childhood traumas and our childhood whatever. Kind of fascinating. I, I do think you're right. He was unfairly slammed because was great as an actor. I yeah. don't know that... Even the year before in Speed, charmed the hell out of me. I thought he was wonderful. You know, he's fantastic. So I got to think this is a choice. I think you're right, Dahlia. This is like him... Choosing this or Longo and and piano choosing this.
5: Because it's true. I mean, if if your only purpose is to basically be a courier of someone else's information, you are gonna be two-dimensional. Yeah. Because it is. It's your memories, it's your past that create the richness of your character. Yeah, I don't know. It was just interesting watching it. Because yeah, like for instance, when he does the I Want Room service. <laughs> That line was supposed to be funny, right?
2: I think so. Yeah, yeah,
3: (laughs) well, yeah. The way that Longo talks about how they built up that mound, so he's like on top of the world type of thing. Yeah, he does that. I want and I need throughout so much of this movie. He's constantly. I need a computer. I need a. (laughs) I need a computer. Very, very demanding of things, and he's got that you know, he's got a few funny lines. He's got the whole thing where he holds up the briefcase and asks if anybody ordered a large pepperoni or something. And then he's got his little John McLean zinger where he knocks out the one guy. And he's like, next time knock Baldy. Uh,
2: what well, that fell flat for me it was like, Oh really? It was like, almost like they had to say, Oh, insert one liner here. It's like, come on. Like really? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> so, I mean, That's me. was like Hollywood interfering. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was like, that was there all along, but it is the most clever jab at, you know, a bald assassin. I don't know.
3: I don't know how good his acting was at this time or not. Of course, I loved him in my own private Idaho and all yeah. the Bill and Ted movies and things. But 92 was Bram Stoker's Dracula, which was one of the worst performances I've ever seen on film. And mm. then Much Ado About Nothing. He wasn't much more lively than that, if memory serves. But oh, I mean, interesting. I- I will concur that he definitely brought it in speed. He brought it in his earlier movies, love point break for whatever reason, but I love you to death. He's amazing. And I love you to death. He's amazing in parenthood. How could you, so I, I think that this wooden acting was on purpose. I think it was a choice. So I agree this whole thing of him dumping his childhood just so he can make a living. I mean, you don't get much more 2023 than that. Sacrifice all your childhood memories. (laughs) just so you can make a few dollars and Uh, go to new work.
2: That is the funny thing. There is so much that was on point about this movie. Like it's like, wow, nailed it. But like, it's not the the things you expected to be, to be nailed. Like not the science fiction stuff, not the science and technology stuff. It's all the other stuff that it's like, oh wow. The vibe of like this virus that attacks your nervous system that we're all dealing with, you know, all, all these things are kind of, Really uh, impressive. There is that great moment, too, where he walks into the shop and he asks for an iPhone, which, you know, we all know about that one, right? Where he's asked for a Thompson iPhone, which iPhones didn't exist back then. But, you know, he's asking for like this this made up thing that Gibson thing was like an iPhone, a phone. But it's kind of a nice little mm-hmm. weird thing.
5: <laughs> yeah, I actually like I hit rewind because I was right? like, what did I just hear?
2: Right. Yeah, it's kind of cool.
5: And the
3: whole thing, um, too, of poor Takahashi being screwed over by his own company and them voting against letting out the cure for this disease that they basically have helped create. Yeah. And it's just this whole, we will do anything to continue the cycle of making money, even if it means this little girl
2: die. That's dead on. As far as like, we'll, we'll, we'll treat you forever as long as you're paying us. Cure something? Not so much. Because that right. ends our profit line. That ends profits. That's dead on. That was impressive.
5: This was a quote that was mentioned in one of the books, uh, one of the articles that I read to kind of prep. And it was in the foreword of a book by Danny Cavallaro. And he was talking about, again, this is one of the things that really fascinated me about the movie and the notion of like the prosthesis. And he's talking about how we are surrounded by objects like mobile phones, computers, personal stereos microwaves video recorders etc and he said that all these things are integral components of many people's everyday existence often they are regarded not merely as useful tools for the accomplishment of practical tasks but actually as defining aspects of people's identities lifestyles and value systems they thus become comparable to prosthesis which i think is i mean the movie nailed it you know and like in office killer there's one part where the main character, it gets her first computer set up. And she says, like, you know, this could be my best friend. And it's like, you know, it's like this chilling moment, because you're like, oh, my God, like, you know, my iPhone is my best friend. (laughs) You know, it's like, you don't leave the house without it. It's the first thing you look at in the morning. It's the last thing you look at before you go to bed. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, I always think about the like the ear pods as being like kind of like a prosthesis, you know, because you, mm-hmm. you'll you see someone walking down the street and you, for a second you're like, oh, they're talking to themselves. And then mm-hmm. you realize, oh, no, no, they have teeny tiny little headphones. in, And yeah, just I don't know the integration of technology with the body and our reliance on it is just yeah. any kind of movie that sort of foreshadows that is chilling to me. We could all
3: three pull out our phones right now and they would all be personalized. We would have Mm -hmm. our personalized home screen, probably have a personalized case. Do we have the little pop socket on the back? If so, what is that? You know, everybody has to make their phone their own, which is kind of remarkable to me, like, because we could all just be carrying around a single black box and that's it, but nope, everybody's got their own different spin to it.
5: Because awesome, it's yeah. a prothesis yeah oh yeah you know I mean it is it becomes like we use the calculator rather than like you know doing the math inside of our head you know I mean it's like our reliance on it
2: yeah have nerve attenuation disorder but we have changed our our nervous system have, have hardwired to our our devices I mean we all are our, our, our habits it's all like you know the scroll idea you scroll we, we all behave so different than we did I want to say 10 15 years ago we would these people <laughs> that we are now. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, just the, the
5: attention span, the fact that, like, yeah. you know, I'm incapable of watching a movie without, you know, Googling the actors or, or, like, you know, what's, oh, what else did this director do? When did this movie come out? You know, what right. I mean, it, like, you didn't do that 10 years ago.
2: So, so true. yeah, I mean, one reason I love going to a, an actual theater now is like to see, like, I don't pull up my phone because the theater, if you don't go to your don't allow phones as they should not, you know, but it's like, mm. I can't distract myself from this this piece of art i'm trying to enjoy mm-hmm. it's kind of weird right <laughs> i have to do that go out to do that because at home you're right i'm doing the same thing i'm reading trivia i'm like looking at oh where's that face from who's that character actor and that's what we do it's crazy to <laughs> do this yeah. now
3: well now when we have a question it's like you google it rather than look it up someplace yeah or you just shout out to the air and go alexa who is this or siri who is this you know like google you, lower the lights in my room
5: you post on facebook or twitter or whatever you know yeah. like oh does anybody know what the you know but yeah i think that to me is the most kind of prescient aspect of this movie is just the integration of technology and sort of the warnings of mm-hmm. you know yeah. like i like that the, the the rebels are the low-tech people well and it's weird too because
3: ralphie he's got that guy who cleans up at the bar i guess he might be the bartender as well and that when <laughs> dolph lundgren as the street preacher attacks him he doesn't put his real hand into the liquid nitrogen or whatever yeah, right. he puts the prosthetic hand in there and then smashes that hand and the right. guy's equally upset you know like oh why'd you have to do that and it's like Dude, like he could have taken your whole hand, but I don't know if the guy would have minded it cuz he could just get a new hand. I think right now more than anything it's the inconvenience of having to get a new prosthetic hand.
2: Like well, if you if I smashed your iPhone mic, like, right? You would be so pissed off yeah. rather than playing off a finger of yours cuz you know, you can the a finger somewhere. Cuz you have a connection.
3: <laughs> you want a toe, dude? I'll get you a toe. Exactly.
2: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but you're right though. It was good. it's kind of yeah, it's like the all the uh, Keanu's little plug in his, his neck, the, the back of the head, like all these little devices. And it's actually quite subtle. It's not, I mean, there are a few, the bartender with the prosthetic, you know, mm-hmm. the, you hear the mechanical servos, like here's your drink, ma'am. You know, it, that's, that's obvious. But a lot of little ways that, you know, uh, it's interesting that the Yakuza guy, his thumb is like now this razor oh, yeah. wire, you know, the symbol of your shame is now your asset. You know, whatever you said that, you know, that's a great line about <laughs> him using his, this, you know, disfigurement as a weapon, which right. is great.
3: Well, since they say yakuza you probably had to cut off his thumb
2: to prove yes. affiliate fealty. yes exactly
3: and it's so cool that whip laser whip going around i mean uh, the monofilament of the short story is pretty cool too and he does manage to cut a guy into like three big chunks yeah but i love the the look of the laser whip going through and just slicing people
2: someone actually did recently a super cut on twitter of like all the scenes where people are chopped up very finely and they fall apart. Like it's a common trope, you know, I'm wondering where it started. Was it this or and it can come to be this. It was like the nineties. They'll have a, a classic, like a whip whip thing. And like your head falls apart. <laughs> very cleanly, right. very, like It's been a thing for years now, but I wonder if this was one of the first ones where we, we saw that. I wonder I when
3: Vincenzo Natale's cube came out. Cause that was one of the first that ones. Was that 99 in was 99, okay, 2000. Okay. okay. So this one so, predates later. that.
2: All right so it is very much a, again I, I do love that trope i i love seeing people turn to lunch meat that's my thing i guess yeah so.
3: well even in uh ice pirates Dwayne that we talked about of when, course uh, that's right angelica houston slices that guy's head off and he goes to nod and his whole head comes rolling that's off. right that's yeah. right man maybe that was uh ground zero for everything i mean it, it kind of fits you know <laughs>
2: ice pirates the ground (laughs) zero for anything is shocking but cool I think exactly
3: (laughs) yeah we haven't even talked about Udo Kier who just of course I mean I think Dali when you and I were talking earlier you're like oh have you done an episode on barbed wire and I'm like not yet but I want to and he kind of plays a similar role if memory serves
5: like Dwayne had mentioned with the Ice-T character you know being very similar and again I I don't think it's typecasting because they came out too close together. It just, it speaks to like what these characters represent or I don't know. Like, you know, I think anytime you want sort of like a cool underground guy, it's like Ice-T is your man. And yeah, Udukir is just good at being that sort of villainous type, but yes, I'm waiting for the barbed wire podcast.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Modern audiences, Matt, remember that for a while, Ice-T was the most dangerous man on the planet. Like everyone treated him as, a, as it was like, Oh my God, what are you saying? Like, and now it's like he's on Law and Order. I mean, he's like kind of like he's he's sort of like comforting is very cozy. I think I, Ice T's very cozy now. Love oh, Ice T. Yeah. But the time though it was like late ni- early nineties. He was like kind of the you know, the badass you want. He and Henry Rollins. He was also like speaking some hard truths. You know, <laughs> it's kind oh of cool. yeah.
3: I can't remember when Liar came out, but I think that was prior to this, and that was a yeah. great video. And then yeah, Ice T was all about body count. I mean, first he had his whole OG. You know, rap career and stuff, but then yeah. when he got into body count and started mixing rap with hard rock, yeah, Pop Killer's the first song that comes out of the gate. Yeah, holy shit, man! I the, when he did that at Lollapalooza, I was just like, wow, this is yeah, right? terrific.
2: <laughs> but I, I, I do wonder if you know people today watching it who don't quite were you know as old as we are uh, <laughs> watching right. that like Ice tea, really. But now he was dangerous. He was a dangerous guy. We love him for it.
3: Well, then Udo Kier, I think he he plays that slimy European ambisexual. So, him having the two bodyguards and one might be trans, the other one might not be. And just the way that they interact and everything. And they're kind of dressed in that clown makeup and stuff. And I'm just like, Udo's having a good time with these two and probably anybody else that walks in the bar as well. You know, like I don't think Udo cares who he fucks as long as he's fucking. You know, yeah, And I think that's a perfect role for him to be this underground connector of all of these different people. And then, of course, he's immediately going to sell out Johnny when the Yakuza
2: come knocking. It's funny. His character, the, the short story, it's the same as Ralphie Face, is his name in the story. And he has his face modified to like the last big pop singer who won the quote, was it the race rock wars? Like it was a whole thing. About, it's implied that in Gibson's world, rock music had a racial battle at some point. And this guy, Christian White, he was an Aryan reggae singer <laughs> one. And this character, Ralphie Face, made his face look like this guy. It was just again, that's why Gibson's some is brilliant. It's like he packs in so much, it implies this like oceans of backstory that you barely get, but you can actually feel okay. Yeah, that, that sounds right to me. Yeah, I get it. We have right. that. You know, we have like those kind of characters now who are, you know, trading on what have you. But it, it was, yeah. So to me, it was like, okay. I don't know how you do that in a film. Like, how do you translate that into a film? I guess the answer is you hire Udo Kier, who's awesome, you know, and slimy and creepy mm-hmm. and wonderful. I
3: think if the movie has one big downfall, I think it's the third act. Yeah. I was re watching the movie again last night and I was just like, okay, yeah, we're coming up to the end of the movie. They're about to ascend up into heaven and we're going to talk to Jones and then we're going to get the stuff out of Johnny's head, save the world, and then we're good. And then I'm like, oh, wait, no, Takahashi has to show up and he has to get defeated. And then the Yakuza show show up. Oh, and then they have to be defeated. Oh, and then the street preacher shows up and he has to be defeated. And then Takahashi comes back. And I'm just like, my God, guys, what is going on here that you have all of your villains converging on one spot and doing these kind of individual fights it's like this doesn't work, you know. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. at yeah. one point, I said, you know, oh, the street preacher hasn't shown up, and Andrew's like, no, he's been in this movie several times. And I'm like, no, no, I mean, here at the climax, like we have yet to get to that whole part, and that's going to take a long time because that fight takes a while. Yeah. And yeah, it, it was wild just to see the pacing of that third act and just realize, like, this third act is, I mean, it's a good. 30 minutes, maybe even 40 minutes. It's kind of wild.
2: It's long. And Street Preacher, I, mean, I, I love I the character and Dolph Lundgren is amazing, but it's really redundant. Like they didn't need him. I think it was just he was shoehorned in there to be Dolph Lundgren. And that's cool. I mean, yeah, I love that. just the perversity of it. It's it's kind of great, but they could have made that character somebody else. Yeah, you I know, or you are, you know gotten rid of the um was it Sinji, the other I mean assassin. It's just sort of again yeah, redundant.
5: What was what's on the cutting room floor?
3: Yeah, it makes you wonder what else was out there. What else they shot? What else didn't get included? Because, like I said, there is a lot more Takahashi and the, the the longer version. There's a little bit more Street Preacher. There's a couple other like just minor things here and there. But yeah, for the most part, otherwise they run pretty concurrent. But yeah, just it was an odd feeling. And I liked I like the Street Preacher. It feels like Street Preacher should mm. have almost been his own story. Yeah, like, I hate the idea of doing a, a side cool or, you know, comic book based off of the movie where you take a character and kind of expand their world, but that's what it felt like with Street Preacher. Almost like to your point from earlier, he is so modified that he should probably be preaching about modification and just that, you know, the Lord made us one way, but technology makes us better and just yeah. like, really embrace that and take that as the way to go And maybe even like, rather than his cross being a knife, maybe it's, you know, some sort of electronic device or something like a laser sword or something. I don't know what it would be, but just Mm -hmm. pump up that whole idea of him being this modified person and because you've already got Dolph Lundgren, who's just a monster of a human being and he looks amazing in this movie. I mean, this is prime time Dolph Lundgren. Yeah. Take that and like have him be the, you know, the anti-spider, you know, and once spiders out of the picture, it's like, okay, I'm kind of done with street preacher as well. But when he shows up again later, I'm like, oh yeah, I guess he's still out there. I kind of forget he's in the movie sometimes.
2: Yeah. That's all you mentioned. I, I'm missing that scene. You mentioned where it's like him preaching. I, I want to see that to preaching to the, you know, his followers who are the people who are suffering from this thing. You want right. to hear that. Yeah. That was missing. That's <laughs> it's, it's kind of sad.
3: Yeah, because he has a whole congregation. You would expect yeah. with the name Street Preacher, he would just be out literally on the street doing that whole kind of, you know, the end yeah. is coming kind of thing or yeah. you know, wearing a sandwich board, <laughs> whatever it is. But <laughs> it's like, yeah, they just it doesn't feel like they really had a, a hold on that character as much yeah. as they needed to.
5: I was going to say, and I kind of wanted more about the virus.
3: Yeah. Yes. You know,
5: like what is because I think the it doesn't really make his motivation very clear why is he doing what he's doing and what is the connection of the virus to it like it just Mm -hmm. would have been useful to have a little bit more fleshed out
3: i even feel that it's a little insincere that the low techs are the ones who are spreading the word about the virus the cure for the virus because as a low tech i would think i would be kind of like screw all those people who have exposed (laughs) themselves to technology for all these years we're fine up here in heaven. We don't need to worry about those people down below that are all suffering from this disease. They mm-hmm. deserve it.
2: Because your point about the the third act, it was yeah, a very long third act. And I'm so astonished. Most of the movie takes place in Newark. I mean, I love Newark, but like, you imagine kind of a like globe trotting thing. Like, oh, they're in Beijing. This is exciting. It's like, oh, we're in Newark. Cool. You know, it's, it's <laughs> a weird like. I mean, and also it ripped off part of, uh, this is self-plagiarism. The whole bridge thing is from Virtual Light, Gibson's novel. Like the whole idea of a society on an abandoned bridge, that was like Gibson picking from his own book that appeared. Not in the story at all. I'm fascinated by that. You know, the idea that they were trying to build this Gibson-esque world, which I love, but it didn't quite, it's like, okay, why is this happening up there? You know, it, it isn't quite explained or a lot of world building with not a lot of explanation, I think, which may have baffled people back in 95 or even today. So yeah.
3: Yeah, I like the idea in the short story that it's these this whole series of like geodesic domes and they think they call them like Fuller's or something after Buckminster Fuller. And the idea of the one that they have the big climactic battle in is called what like night city or something like that yeah because, Night City
2: there's the killing floor that's like that and part of that yeah right and
3: it's night city because of all the smoke and everything that has gone up in the air has basically blotted out all of the windows in the place so it's perpetually dark inside of this city yeah that reminded me a little of something that would come from like a judge dread comic book not necessarily the movie maybe dread but not judged (laughs) totally totally, yeah (laughs) totally so but yeah i like that idea and so that whole idea of um this society that's living up in the rafters more than anything and that you know there are certain stations that you get to as you're going up and up and up inside of night city until you get to the low-tech area and then that's protected by not J-Bone, but this I can't remember the gentleman's name, but he basically has all of these implants, so he has like dog teeth and oh, he looks yeah, like yeah, a Doberman.
2: Yeah. yeah, Gibson's great at that. I mean he's just great at, you know, again, these little details that really just speak volumes about, you know, the, the world as he sees it. I'm currently, I mean, I'm terrified that Gibson's idea about jackpot is we're living in jackpot. You know, the, the idea is that, you know, it's not just one calamity, it's not like one catastrophe. It's a series of them that will just build exponentially and i feel like that's kind of a very accurate reflection of our world (laughs) that's what we're living in like oh we have a a plague or we have a virus we have the ecological collapse we have corruption it's like all these things not not one thing won't kill us there will be the 18 things that kill us eventually and we won't know it because like we're the frog in the boiling water doesn't feel the boiling water until we're cooked you know as that's kind of his idea he's just great at sort of predicting the the worst (laughs) you know and, and i think we see a lot of that bits of that at least in this movie Bits of his like, yeah, this is where we're headed. Be careful. Strap in, because guess what? It'll be interesting, you know, in your future. Like come as almost a depressive Chriswell.
3: Cr- <laughs> <laughs> My friends, in the future, everything exactly. sucks.
2: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you have no idea how fucked up it'll be.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're going to go ahead and take a break and play an interview with director Robert Longo, and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages.
4: When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner.
0: The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Classicky is a film journey to the East, a curated streaming service offering the best of contemporary and classic cinema from Eastern Europe and Asia. Using coupon code Mike50, you can get E membership for just $5.50 a month, giving you the opportunity to sample award-winning films, documentaries, silent masterpieces, classic comedies, and more. You could also get access to the E Journal, exclusive cast and director interviews, video essays, and watch lists. Visit klassiki.online and sign up now to start your adventure in film.
2: Tuning in to Sci-Fi TV. Hey everybody, welcome back. I'm Brent Barrett. I'm Kevin Batchelder.
5: I'm Wendy Hemprock.
2: The viewer's guide to genre television.
5: Welcome everyone to a special Supernatural Focus bonus Hello everyone
2: show. and welcome to The Fate Fox, A family of podcasts for the genre-loving television viewer. Welcome to Saturday B Movie Reel.
5: Hi everyone, welcome to The Study welcome Group. Welcome to the
2: top genre characters of all-time and countdown.
5: tonight we're going
3: to... Obviously... you're know, you an artist first and foremost, but you've done so many different types of art, types of entertainment even. I mean, where do you see that intersection as far as do movies inspire your art? Does your art inspire movies? I mean, how does that actually happen for you?
4: Cindy and I grew up around the same time. We actually grew up like maybe 10 minutes away from each other. And we both watched this thing on, it was on Channel 9, a local network. They had a thing called the Million Dollar Movie and it would come on, three times a week at like 10 o'clock, four o'clock and seven o'clock. And they would show like the same movie that week. So you could see King Kong like, you know, 20 times in one day, you know, when you're sick and home as a kid, you know, you watch that from King Kong, Mighty Joe Young, all the the John Ford movies, uh, the double circle movies. um, We both watch these same movies and I think they really shaped us a lot. Television really shaped us a lot. I mean, I also was a dyslexic, so I didn't really read. So, magazines and newspapers, things like that, were really important to me. I also grew up in the age of epic films, epics, which are like Spartacus and Ten Commandments, all those really epic films that had intermissions in them and things like that and had music. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, those epic movies really shaped me for sure. I think they shaped my art as to becoming, I want to make epic art. That was one of the things. Then um, when Cindy and I moved to New York, the art world that we thought we were moving to, like the conceptual art, things like that, was basically dying. And um, the white rooms kind of gave way to the dark night of the CBGBs and things like that. And the other thing that was happening, there was was the bleakest street cinema and um, the Carnegie cinema. And we would go see all these movies, like, you know, Godard films and you know, Truffaut, and Hitchcock, things like that. We did that on a regular basis instead of going to art galleries. And also at the same time, there was a Spender Festival, which was quite amazing at the, around, around that same time. And and at the same time, this idea of appropriation was coming into the picture. I mean, I was ripping pictures out of newspapers and making art out of it, but I didn't realize what I was doing so much. And then I was part of this group show called Pictures, and I was really lucky enough to have this writer, Doug Krimp, kind of tell me what I was doing which is interesting to have someone outside of you kind of like look at what you're doing I think movies had a huge effect on all of us I mean we would get up early in the morning be the first one online to go see Close Encounters or Taxi Driver or things like that sit in the front row and so and I was ripping off images from newspapers and for movies too but the piece that kind of launched my career was this piece called American Soldier which is based off of the steel from Fast but so I always had this fantasy, like, would it be cool if I got to make a movie that I could use my own stills from? So I tried to make a movie called Empire with Eric Bogosian, And uh, that mutated into uh, my art led me to having friendships with lots of different people. And one of them, to this day, is one of my closest friends, Richard Price. And Richard Price wrote a script called Steel Angel with for Eric and I. And we can never raise a couple a couple of million dollars to make the movie. And fast forward a couple more years later and I became friends with William Gibson again through the art connection. I was a fan of his his work and he was a fan of my work and I really loved reading his stuff and by this point I started reading it. I got sober and I needed to have something to go to sleep at night. So I, I read books um and I remember reading Neuromancer. I thought this is really fucking cool. And then I remember reading Johnny Amon I thought, this is really cool. I love the beginning of the short story where he's He's making a shotgun. It's just so, it's so, such a cool. Anyway, I thought would make a great movie. And so I called him up and I said, Would you be interested in doing this? me? he said, Yeah, maybe. Anyway, long story. It's a long story how Johnny was made, but William started working on this first script. And then uh, the art world kind of collapsed. And I was one of the artists that got blamed for the 80s. And I moved to Paris uh, for 1980, 89, 88, 89. And in around nineteen ninety or so my apartment in Paris was in the Marais, and it was it was around the corner from this club called the Bandouche. And uh it was a, funny it was a club where when I played in a band I, I played there a bunch oh back back up a second. So when I think about man I was gonna make this movie, I had my background in cinema was is a weird combination, of you know, watching these million dollar movies and, you know, seeing all these epic films. And you combine that with when I was in Buffalo and I started this alternative space hall walls, there was a thing called Media Studies in Buffalo, where they had a lot of experimental, structuralist filmmakers working there. And I saw, they had these really great film programs where I saw Eyes and Sign, things like that. But they also had all these structuralist filmmakers like Paul Sherratt's and Tony Conrad and Michael Snow, things like that. And I ended up working for Paul Sherratt's and making his films, like uh, the I worked for him, and so I knew all this, like, Michael Snow, and I started to seeing how, I started thinking of structuralist films as, like, the abstract expressionism of of film, because, like, you know, abstract expressionism is when paint was no longer used to create a representation, paint basically became the subject matter. And cinema, ab- structural filmmaking, is films without stories, it's about the... The material of film. I mean, you take guys like Stan Brackets or Ken Jacobs; these guys that they, they would, you know, Stan Brackets would shoot a film and hang it in his closet and let it get moldy, and then put it through a film projector and things like that. And I thought this is really wild because, as, as someone that never really read that much, I thought I always thought that, you know, when writers discovered the nature of cinema, they kind of freaked out because it existed in time. So they thought there's going to be a narrative, so we have to make. We have to make narratives, film. We have to make film narratives. So, so stress, I was filled with all that stuff. And then in the mid 80s, when I was trying to make this film, I thought maybe I should really learn how to make movies, actually physically make movies. I thought rock videos would be a really great way of doing that. So what I did is that when I made the rock videos, I called upon all my knowledge of stressless filmmaking. And I made these like videos that had, you know, 800 edits, and, or I broke a couple of avids and things like that. <laughs> and what I did these videos, we rock videos. What I did is, in the middle of the video, I would put a little acting scene, as if you know somebody accidentally hit the control and they went to a movie for a second. So, so that was the, you know the videos were really pretty important in, in the sense of kind of educating me as to how to shoot a film and and what it's like to be on film crew, film set, things like that. That was really formative. And the videos were, I'm, I'm very proud of the rock videos because I thought it was really funny about. What I thought about music is that music is this formal mechanism where anybody can imagine what it looks like. I remember seeing this rock video for a song Billy Idol did called White Wedding and he actually made a video of a white it was so stupid. I thought <laughs> so I kept on thinking with the rock videos I should make videos that evoke what the music sounds like, not what the music really so the videos are non narrative and they're they're just lots of images that kind of bombard you and rhythmically. I mean, I think they're very cool images of rock are very cool, but so anyway, So fast forward now back to Paris and living in Paris and one night at Ben Douche, I bump into some guy there and, and he says, oh, you're Robert Longo. I say, yeah, t- yeah, tonight I am. <laughs> anyway, he says, I own some of your work. Oh, great. And he owns a really great piece of mine. He's from California, but he's also, he lives in Paris. He's in the film business and he said, I heard you want to make a movie. I said, yeah, I do. He says, well, I'd love to make a movie with you. And then I said, well, I just so happen to have this script called Johnny DeMondon. And he said, oh, well, it sounds great. And that's where the journey began. His name was Stephen Aramber, a really amazing guy. He's produced a couple of films, a movie called Quiet American. Things like, and be, he kind of got burnt on the Hollywood as well, but anyway. So the origin of Johnny, how it started, was being Stefan Harenberg. That, oh. that, that was a big part of it. And then the next stage of the night continued because he hooked me up with a producer that he is, was working with, a guy named Peter Hoffman, who was this really slimy dude, and he wanted to bring the film to Caralco. Meanwhile, back in the early days when we had Steel Angelo, Richard Price and I would go out to L.A. to meet people and try to make the movie. And the reason why we were meeting people in LA is because people wanted Richard to write their scripts. So they were seeing me, but they really wanted to get to Richard. So, so Richard developed his whole other career of writing movies and being a script doctor. He was so great with dialogue and things like that. So that never really panned out, but I remember those Hollywood movies. So I remember meeting the made Terminator, all the Rambo movies, things like that. What the fuck am I doing with these people? And, uh, Hoffman was started to manipulate, trying to alter the script. He and his wife kept fucking with the script. And I kept on going, you know, you know, William Gibson is one of the most uh, prolific, well-known writer, most important writers of his generation. He's translated into like, you know, 50 languages. He sells millions of books. These motherfuckers are actually trying to tell William what to write. It was, it, it was just so stupid. It was I can't, just thinking about how to get pissed off, dude. The script went through so many mutations; it was really ridiculous. And then they they took us to con to raise money. I went to con to raise money, and at that point we didn't have any some of the actors locked in yet. And Hoffman had a connection to Val Kilmer. And what about Val Kilmer being? Uh, I never met Val Kilmer, so I didn't really know him. And I said that'd be cool. Seen, you know, I thought The Doors was a really great movie. Some of the movies just made are great. And they said, but we we need to add some international stars to the film so that we can sell it to different markets. So they come back and they said, well, we have to have Dolph Lundgren in the film. I said, what the fuck? Dolph Lundgren? Crazy. He says, well, he's really big in the Middle East. So Dolph Lundgren is in the film. Then the next thing they come back and they says, we need to have this Japanese guy. He's the the most popular actor and performer in Japan. His name is Takeshi Katano. Which at that point I didn't know was also an incredible filmmaker of his own. Right. And I said, oh, okay, that's cool It's me, but Kenteshi really didn't speak any English. And then we had to create these characters for them in the film that was a whole other thing. So they weren't in the script originally. So they came into the script and William did an incredibly great job for Dolph. We created we turned Dolph into this character called Street Preacher, but we had him he gave. we had him give sh- sermons in a church. We What Tristar cut out of the movie of Dolph is so fucking great. I mean, he was actually really pretty great in it. He went along with everything we asked him to do and he such an extremely bizarre character. Meanwhile, Takeshi was only available like a certain amount of days to to shoot. So we had to shoot it very specifically and he didn't speak any English. But he was actually pretty cool, but I mean, but highly limited in that sense. So anyway, they ended up raising the money and next thing I know that we had to shoot the movie in Toronto because of tax alliance was just starting off as a film company back then. I can't remember the name of the guy, Robert, um, can't remember his name. He was the head of it all. Anyway, anyway, we had to shoot the film in Toronto and which was a bit bizarre. My wife at the time, Barbara Sokova, who was like this really great German actress. And I thought this would be really great. She should be in the movie. She's like, you know, She's won every award for acting in Europe as possible. She's only the award that she hasn't won as an Oscar. So maybe we should use her. So we put her in the film. And William wrote this incredible part for her. And of course, they cut the shit out of it in the end. And um, my youngest son was born in Toronto when I was there. We actually was born the night of my first shooting. Which is what, so I'm running back and forth between the hospital and the set where we had... 400 Asians rioting on the street. Pretty, <laughs> pretty bizarre, but but yeah, so it's it, it's a bizarre story for sure. And I didn't realize that Hoffman had this plan where he would hired this second unit director who had been a second unit director on a lot of, of, I guess, Cameron films and things like that. And he kind of promised him that I would get fired after the first week, and he could take over the movie. And meanwhile, we got word of that and. Keanu and William Ball said they quit if I got fired, and it got really crazy. And it was a really difficult shoot. Also, I have to admit, I was learning on the spot for sure. I mean, I had all these plans how I wanted to shoot things, and I realized, you know, I didn't realize what how much how complicated things are. Like, I mean, I I realized what's had to happen with these movies that you have all those beautiful pictures that you want to shoot, those images that you want to shoot. You can't do them. You have to do what's important to the story first. And then if you have time, you get all that juicy stuff later on. So that, that was really important. That, I learned a lot. I mean, yeah, it was, a, it was a real intense period of time.
3: What was the original vision of the film? What was that like before you started to have to change all these things?
4: It was going to be black and white. It was going to be like Alphaville. If Alphaville and Blade Runner had a kid, you know, something like that. It was a, it was a very kind uh, noirish and uh, grungy and... Yeah, it had a lot of, oh, has a lot of, it, ironically, by turning it black and white, the film is actually closer to where it originally was going to be for sure. But I mean, I like the idea that, that is, this guy has this stuff in his head and his head's going to explode, which I think is what, you know, every movie has to have this epic, like, save the world thing at the end, you know, so that that was part of it for sure. But Keanu was really great in that film for sure. I mean, he, what's interesting through the course of the film, he actually lost weight he got more and more gaunt as we went because we shot in sequence, which was great. What the movie was going to originally be, I don't know, I mean, it's very close to the black and white version. It was very close to it in a way. Right? I mean, I might never got a chance to do a director's cut. What was ironic about doing this black and white version, it was when I realized that Johnny Mnemonic was set in the year 2021 and it was like the 25th anniversary of the film, I thought this is a, this is my chance to like have some closure redemption i felt like I, I owed this to keanu and william to like somehow redeem this film and i was going to turn it black and white dump it on the internet you know and i showed it to my one of my good producers this guy don carver i said i just want to let you know i'm going to do this and i don't care about you know TriStar star sony comes after me and sues me I, I just got to do this and he says send it to me i sent it to him but he, he watches he it he says it's fucking great you should so, show it to sony and you know, maybe you'll do something with this. So I showed it to Sony. The guy there, I can't remember his name, he loved it. And he said, we should do this. We should re-release it. We should do a Blu-ray up for it. Would you do a commentary and things like that? I said, you know, I don't got a lot of good shit to say about you guys. (laughs) (laughs) He said, no, that's exactly what we want. You know, exactly what we want. My new wife, Sophie Shanin, is a a director. And she uh, directed the commentary. She did an amazing job. Piano was in Paris, William was in uh, Vancouver, and I was in New York. And, and we had a great time talking about the film, and so we sent it to Sony. And meanwhile, that guy that was really enthusiastic about it had moved up the ladder and was replaced by some robot chick that as soon as she heard me say fuck, she sent, sent the whole thing to the lawyers. And then it became this horrible process of them editing the shit out of the commentary. And I said, this is why I don't make movies. Because right. you motherfuckers just... You don't know... You, you only you make more versions of the same shit that works. So you make part two, you know, the continuation, the sequel. But you have no idea what originality is at all. I mean, it was you know that thing that Borwell said is like art is a boy's name. For these, for those guys, art is like the worst thing possible Any, you know, it's amazing that that there are films that get made that are really great works of art for sure. I mean, I'm very impressed when I can see that because I remember asking somebody like who has final cuts and everyone says nobody really has final cut i mean distributors have final cut you know they, they can mess with your film to like right to the very end it's like it's it's really weird because you start realizing that hollywood has become a bit like the vatican like i, I was at one point john tutoro and i were talking about making a movie about caravaggio caravaggio is his painter was born in a northern part of italy he has great talent, and he really wanted to make it big, but he had to move to Rome like an artist moves to New York. And to make it big, you got to work for the church. But if you work for the church, what kind of pains do you make? The same stories over and over again. Sounds a lot like Hollywood, right? And that's what Hollywood's it, feeling was it was a bit like that, for sure. But
3: So the black-and-white version is not just you going in and turning the chroma right off, because it looks like it's been manipulated to the point where the black and white is so striking.
4: Well, if you think about black and white films, they're mostly gray. Right. You know, they're gray, they're not black and white, they're gray. So, I worked with this really great editor Cyrus and um we literally went scene by scene and tweaked it. So it's it's really black and white. It's very dark and See, the thing is also, you know, when we were shooting the movie that, you know, they kept on saying it's too dark, I'm saying it's too dark because we don't have enough money to show everything. you know. And also, there's no reason to show everything sometimes. It's not necessary. And I thought it would be cool to see all those video, video graphics turned black and white because they all look so incredibly dated. Because the guys that did the last sequence of Johnny and Monarch at that time were the most, most cutting-edge guys in computer animation that existed. And they were fans of Gibson's, and that's how we found them. And they were like these like crazy guys working independently. And they they said, "Okay, we'll do this." for you. So that last sequence at the very end was like we're revolutionary in relationship to, to video graphics. William was also was really incredible through the whole experience. He stuck by me. What was very funny, we always talk about how both of us after the film was over never thought about making movies again. We realized we both had PTSD from this experience. You know, it was just like. <laughs> William went back to being a writer. He's been incredibly prolific with his writing. He's been really great. And uh, I went back to being an artist. And that's, I'm very happy doing what I'm doing now. Nobody's telling me what to do. I mean, the thing about movies is like, it's like as if like you go, you go buy a can of paint and you open it up. This analogy doesn't make that much sense anyway. It's just a lot of people telling you what to do. This is really awful you now. It's like you open up and I said, this is the color I want. But the guy who paid for the paint says, no, it's not the color. It's not the right color. But I said that's the color I want. But I paid for the can of paint, so right. get the right color. So what was interesting is is, is that the year or so after, a couple of years after giant mine, Keanu comes to visit me. Says I want. So I've stayed very close to Keanu. We're we really good friends. And and uh, I want I want to show you this this film that I'm working on now. He brought a bunch of like uh, video cassettes. You know, remember those a little bit. So, so he came over. We had a couple of beers. We sat down, and he we slammed him into the machine. And he's playing me the fucking Matrix before they put before the, the effects on it and stuff like that. He said, I just wanted you to see this before it comes out. So What was really smart about The Matrix, they shot it in Australia. So this is before you could send files over the internet. So they were in Australia. So by the time the, the Dailies got back to LA, they were like two days in. So when the, the film studio could bitch, they couldn't go back that far. My problem was, my work was going from Toronto to LA overnight, and they were seeing the shit, and they were telling me we shoot stuff. And it, it was like horrible. I really admired those guys going to Australia to make that movie. When I saw that, it was like, yeah, you know, where I see him putting a thing in his head. I mean, there's a lot of giant demonic in, in the,
3: the Matrix. to shoot. Definitely. What was your experience working on things like Arena Brains or um, uh, Tales from the Crypt?
4: Arena Brains was, again, a, a thing about learning to make movies. I met this really great art collector. He was a collector. Who ran He ran electro records, and he said to me, "You know what? If you want to make a movie, I'll give you like you know a hundred thousand dollars, but you have to make a video for me of this band called World um, Saxophone Quartet." I said, "Sure, whatever you want." World Saxophone Quartet are these this super group of jazz players. These four African Americans, extraordinary Julius Hempel. these amazing players, and I went to see them and asked them about doing it and they said, no way. I don't, we don't want to do a video. And, but it turned out I made a video that was so great that they they loved it and they wanted me to do more videos for them. But it was really the video for them is really great. It had Bill T. Jones in it and it's it's kind of black and white in color. So I got this money from this guy at Electric Records and he said, but I want you to finish it in time so it can get into the New York Film Festival. Give me the money. Give me a time. Now, now I, have a time, I have to get it done by a certain amount of time. How do you know it's going to get me from her? He says, I trust you. You're going to make something really great. I have no script. I have nothing. I don't. It's, it's, it's not enough money to do with the feature I wanted to do. I got in touch with all my friends that were writers. And I said, could you write me scenes? And I'll connect them somehow. So Richard Price wrote a scene. Emily Prager wrote a scene. E. Max Fry wrote a scene. I don't know who else wrote a scene. I wrote a scene. Anyway, and it it was connected with Michael Stipe being this guy who's like a guy who kind of wanders through the films one way or another. So, And it did get into the New York Film Festival, which is kind of great. It opened with Barfly. That was a really interesting experience because it was a really crash course. I met Joel Silver, another art collector, who, who said, well, you want to make movies. Well, why don't you do one of these Tales from the Crypt? And I said, okay, I'll do it. And I moved, I moved out to LA and that's where I met my first wife, Barbara Scorer, in, in LA. Yeah, that was interesting experience with Joel's, really. It was really fun because Tales of Cripp had two had two camera crews and one the camera crew I got the guy who was a young guy, camp DP, and I, I said I would say things and what like, I like I want this scene to be like like Citizen Kane. And then he says, I've never seen Citizen Kane. I said, What do you mean? He says, I'm waiting for it to be colorized. I was like, What the fuck? So anyway, but there are the, all these kind of weird obstacles that happen. Like, for instance, going to Toronto, you have to, to shoot the film in Canada, you have to have, to get the t- Canadian tax break at that time, you have to have a certain amount of key people be Canadian. Fortunately, Keanu was Canadian, which is really great. The guy that wanted to shoot my movie was Michael Chapman, who did Raging Bull, because right. he knew my art and- I said, this is great. I'm going to have the greatest cinematographer. No, you can't have Michael Chapman. He's not Canadian. You have to have a Canadian DP. So I go from a work potential work pool, of, you know, a country of 200, 300. At that time, it was like maybe 275 million people to a country with 20 million people. So all of a sudden, like scrounging to find a Canadian DP. I found one who's not, he actually was pretty good. He, did, he had done this movie called Black Robe. And he's interested in doing it, but apparently he's been working too much and his wife doesn't want him to to take some time. So he can't do it. We keep on scrounging. Finally, the one guy, that O'Lantos, that was the guy, Robert Lantos. They suggest this guy, DP. I can't remember if it was Francois or something. Anyway, his major film credit was Weekend at Bernie's. I mean, real classic. But the thing about him, he was French, so he knew who Godard was. And we had a common language, which was kind of great. It was really good. But he was also, I think he had some drug issues at the time. And he was, he was sometimes, you know, MIA. The camera operator I had was, was not willing to do a lot of things I would wanted to do. Like when we were shooting, when we'd take a lunch break, when he come back, I would turn the camera. You know, I'd put it on Dutch and I'd call action before he had a chance to fix it, things like that. It was pretty weird The experience for sure. You talked a little bit about the role for Barbara Sokovia. What was that originally supposed to be like? It was a pretty big role. There were so, some amazing scenes between her and Keanu. So amazing. Oh, wow. The only one that kind of ended was the stuff at the very end. So we shoot the film and Ron Sanders agrees to edit the film. And Ron Sanders is Cronenberg's editor. And he knows everything I'm talking about. He's very cool. He's had lots of experience. He's editing great movies. because he's made great movies. And we, we make a, all the cuts we make, they just trash it. And they eventually take the film away and take it to Hollywood. First, they send up a script editor out, a guy that worked for Cameron, Michael Duffy. And, and he starts butchering the shit out of the film. And then they want to take it to LA. And my producer, this guy, Don Carmody, fights to keep it in Toronto. And Somehow we come up with some compromise which was which was torture, but editing it was really horrible experience. But that's why I didn't want to go back and do a director's cutter because I I thought about all the great stuff that's like there's a scene where Kateshi when he thinks about he's sitting in his daughter's bedroom and he's surrounded by like hundreds of stuffed animals and it, it's a dolly zoom shot that starts on him and he comes back and, and all of a sudden you realize there's hundreds of these stuffed animals and he's in his his daughter's bedroom and there were some really great scenes with barbara you know her character was a really amazing character we always thought if johnny mnemonic would be successful we could do the sequel and it would be a story about her being head of pharmacon becoming neural net persona and things like that i'd say it's pretty cutting-edge
3: to be looking at the pharmaceutical industry at that time before it even gets to be the monster that it ends up being.
4: One of the most poignant lines in the, in the script is is that the pharmaceutical company was more interested in treating a disease than curing it. That community is so incredibly profound, and I thought it thought it was so important. It still exists right now. You know, treating a disease is far more profitable than curing it, for sure. Yeah. And like the whole idea of the the plague, well we just went through a play. <laughs> <like, Yeah>. yeah. So <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah. Yeah. There you go. The you mentioned them adding extra roles. I mean, what were some of those roles that weren't there before other than Street Preacher? Kiteshi's character
4: was not quite that, you know was wasn't quite as big as it was in the original script, the Street Preacher and that those, those two are the big ones for sure. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is is also finding the character to that plays. Jane, his bodyguard in the, in the film, was like... So the scenario would happen with Val Kilmer is, is that I learned this expression called money pregnant, that a film could be money pregnant. Do you know this expression? No, I've never heard that one before. What it means is that the money is locked. So you have, to, you have a start date. So if you don't start on that date, you lose the money. So we had to start on a certain date. So Val basically knows this, and he's holding the film hostage... I spent like a like a couple of weeks with Val in a hotel in in uh, Toronto. I mean, he was such a dick. I mean, we were looking at women to play the part. What happened is he was basically holding our film hostage because he was waiting to find out if he got Batman. And then when he locked into Batman, he just split and left us wow. with nobody. And ironically is is that the two guys that signed my DGA, the joint DJ was Martin Scorsese and the other one was Joel Schumacher and Joel Schumacher calls me up saying tell me about he's about to direct the Batman he says tell me about Val I said you're in for a special treat then the interviews that happened after after that with Schumacher talking about Val man he 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 fucking really ripped into Val after that according according to Val Val basically directed every movie that he's ever been in yeah right it was like yeah, let me talk about a narcissist Anyway, yeah, there aren't there aren't that many. It was it was what how they they reduced all the peripheral characters, you know, by cutting back the like Barbara's character, which was really stupid, and and creating this see preacher, and then cutting down street preacher. We kept on saying to him like, you know, car- evil guys, ha- you have to like the evil guys because then when they're evil, they're really even more evil, you know, right. And then I realized how little, they actually, they, I mean, the little bit that I knew about storytelling and filmmaking far exceeded what these the Hollywood execs. I remember going in these meetings and they're going, well, we got to change the name of the film. Mark Kent saying, we got to change the name of the film because I can't say Johnny, Mum mom, mom. M- right. Let's change it, Johnny, get you gun. I said, there is a film that I call. It. <laughs> call it. It's also a really famous book, stupid. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs>
3: Yeah, the the cast of the movie is just incredible. The um, the different types of people that you've brought together. I mean, seeing Ice
4: T and Henry Rollins in the same film, They were great. I know, I'm, I'm really, really enjoyed. It. Again, Henry is, is still is a is still a friend, and and uh, I thought he was really great in that film. When he does that whole speech, "What's killing her?" This kid, everything is. I think he was he was really good. He was good. The way
3: he says just Johnny is one of my favorite things.
4: I know, I know. It's very funny. I was I was in Berlin doing an exhibition in, in Berlin. This friend of mine had told me about you know this artist named Trevor Pagpoulin. So Trevor does all this kind of like um covert stuff, spy stuff and you know, our NR- NSA and all this stuff. And he says he has these friends in Berlin that are called black hackers. They're they're like, you know, the dark net. There are these heavy duty computer guys, you know, that they can do anything on the computer, steal your money, whatever. Anyway, they show up on my show. They looked pretty intense to begin with, but they started doing lines from dynamic. Like, I need a computer. They were like, it was like I realized this movie was so important. And I remember they're saying unto me, like if I have any problems on oh, with my computer or my bank or anything like that, just let them know, they'll fix it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? They were absolutely, they're very cool people. They were good. very cool. But I, but I realized Johnny had a life of, you know, it would, so what happened is when the release date of the film was supposed to be like in February or something like that. A, kind of like a dead zone where nobody, you know, wasn't competing against anything. And when they took it out to LA and they started fucking with it, TriStar's summer film at that time was supposed to be a film called Mary Riley, which was like, a, at that time, our movie at that at this point was like maybe 20, it had become like All I wanted was $2 million. I got $25 million. Their like $120 million film called Mary Riley was apparently in total chaos and they could release it as a summer film. And Keanu had just blown up with speed. So they thought, wow, let's make Johnny Mnemonic our summer movie. So my movie opened the weekend of Die Hard and Batman. But it actually was, it did actually, it was like number three for the first two weeks of it. I mean, it, it has made money and it continues to I, mean, I still don't get residual checks from it every now and then, but it's kind of a lot. Them trying to turn it into something that wasn't was really bizarre. It was hard. That's why I, again I go back to the black and white version. I I feel very good about the black and white version. It's very close to what it
3: matched. Did William Gibson? Did he was he on set with you during the shooting?
4: Every now and then, yeah, he would come. Yeah, it was very funny. Um, one of my favorite scenes in the movie, and I think. For a lot of people, is is Johnny's tirade under the bridge. So that's not the original script. I said, William. I said, William, we need a scene where Johnny freaks out and we're freaking out. So we need him to like. You need to channel all our piss anger and have it come out in a scene here, because all the shit that's happening to him is like the shit that's happening to us while we're trying to make this movie. So I found a place under the bridge where I, I built this mound so it's like the curve of the earth. So it's like a dirt mound so it's kind of curved. And again, here's a situation. The tirade in its entirety was so fucking great. But they chopped it up. They had reaction shots to Jadayn which, which wasn't necessary. But they chopped it up. It was, it was a little bit longer. But Keanu fucking killed it. It was so great. That's my, one of my favorite whole movie. I want room service. I want a computer. All like, these lines that are out of my movie that people still remember, which is really great. Are all these
3: things that you've talked about, these extra scenes, these things that they chopped down, are, do they still exist that you know of, or are they just gone forever?
4: You know what? Who knows? I don't know. I, yeah. I tried to find, I try. I had some of the eight the uh, millimeter, like copies of dailies that I, I had. I couldn't find anything. Like that scene with the cashier that would have been really great and, a lot of scenes with Barbara and Keanu would have been great, but no, nah, it, was, it was like too painful to like go back to try to figure out how to put these things back in there for sure. Yeah, it was not, not worth it, not worth it. I mean, I remember them. <laughs> that's, that's about as far as it goes. With Takeshi not speaking English very
3: well, was it difficult to direct him?
4: No, he was great. He was, he yeah. was, he, he was, like, he was a very kind man, and I went to visit him in Japan. I mean, he, he was really great. I mean, I didn't realize what a gigantic story is, and he's huge. And I love his films. He, I mean, he did tell us some really great stories while he was working. He told us how his father was actually in the yakuza, and uh, people when he died, people came. They wanted to get his tattoos to put in a museum. His mother wouldn't let them because when when his father died, his mother was washing the body discovered his father had another woman's name tattooed in, in his armpit, which apparently is a really painful place again. So oh, these wow. like, little stories they told me were really great. He was, he, and Then when I visited him in Japan, he gave me uh, this really beautiful ceramic pot piece of pottery. And um, as, I'm going to the air, as I'm going to the airport, one of his assistants called me and said, don't say what you have. I said, what do you mean? Because this the piece of pottery is made by a national treasure. It's not allowed to leave Japan. Oh, oh, (laughs) jeez. So I have it it in my house. So I have have a a ceramic pot by a national treasure of Japan.
3: So you just turned your back completely. Did you ever make any, like, another music video or anything
4: else after this? I made a short film with a German film playwright that was a friend of my wife's who I liked very much. His name is Klaus Pohl. It was for German television, it, and it was uh, it was for Heinrich Heinrich's birthday. So it, it's kind of like uh, he wrote the script. And the problem is, is that he was a bit of an alcoholic, and he's a really great playwright, but it, we had some hard times. It, it. script wasn't finished in time. He was a brilliant man, but it had its own problems, for sure. Nobody told him what to do, which was okay, but at the same time, I had no script. They would come for shooting, that there was no script. you know what what am I supposed to do today? So actually, Cindy's Cindy's in it, Barbara's in it. It's actually a nice little film, But that was the last thing I did really. Now, what I'm making is I'm making these like little short art films, which is like great. Then I'm very happy. No I'm paying for them myself. Nobody gets tells me what to do. Meanwhile, I have a my youngest son just just graduated from. NYU, or the master's program in film, that he's like a real, he's going to make movies. He's going to, he's going to make movies I wish I would have made for sure. So, so he's busy doing that for sure.
3: There's one thing that I think you did, but I'm not sure because I, it says long ago on the beginning of it. And I figure it has to be you. It was an MTV bumper with Steve Buscemi where he's
4: saying all these titles. I, Love that. I still quote from that all the time. uh, Arena Brands is the first movie that Steve was ever in. I mean, the cast of Arena Brands is pretty great. MTV had these things called Art Breaks. So they asked me to do it and I did it and everyone would end with just like a kind of boom that my name would come on. I remember Michael Stipe telling me that he was like in Indiana or someplace and he heard my name being used as an adjective. And he asked the kid, do you know why are you using that word? He says, because I heard it on MTV. He, the kid had no idea who I was. They just thought that my name may become an adjective. That's <laughs> really long ago. I thought this would be funny.
3: That's one of my favorite things ever. So I, I have to thank you for that. That, uh, that short is amazing. She's, she's also in Reimbrandt's. It's been a while since I've seen that. Is that even available any place these days? I think I still have it on VHS.
4: Reimbrandt's is not, it's not bad. It's like for like, Slapped together really quickly, but it's not bad. There's some moments in it that are really great. Ray the La- Liotta is really great it. and it. Uh, the scene that Richard wrote, which is so great. Anyway, with all of it's pretty good. And e. Max Fry has become like this huge, you know, writer. He's written a bunch of movies. Very smart guy. Ray Liotta was 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 fun to do for sure. I mean, but it's not really a movie. It's like uh, I guess I learned from my kid. at NYU. This this whole world called shorts. Short films. I guess the uh, Brains is a short film. Artwork
3: can be so solitary, you know, just working on your drawings, working on your photo, you know, these kind of things. When it comes to film, it's, I would imagine, it's super different. You have to work with so many people, or am I completely well, off base?
4: Well, for me, you are a little bit because the thing is, is that when, I, when I started uh, as an artist, I, I met these two guys, Troy Brontalk and Jack Goldstein. Jack Goldstein was an artist who was making photos and And short films, and he didn't know how to make films. He had somebody else make films, so he said, "You know, as an artist, you don't necessarily have to do the shit. Somebody else can do the work for you. You have to have the idea to do it." So very early on in my career, my work was really ambitious, and I realized if if I was to do the work myself, I would only get one work done. But if I had help, I had an assistant, I could get two done. You know, and from two turned into three. so, eventually, in the 80s, I had, you know, maybe 10 people working with me in my studio to get work done. So, the solitary part about it is, like, figuring out what I'm going to do, making sketches, making plans. But then it becomes very... So, I make art very much like a director makes movies right now. I mean, I mean, I have a studio with, like, my office has four people in it. I have an archivist, a, a, someone that does the payroll, you know, that I have, um, in the studio, I have, like, six people working in the studio. So... If for my charcoal drawings, if I, if I did the drawings myself, I'd make one a year, but it's so time consuming. So I have a lot of really great young artists working for me. It's really, I mean, I, I'm i the boss that I wish I had for sure. I mean, I'm, I pay them really well, I give them a lot of free time. I mean, I give them time to be artists for sure. And at the same time, it's a job, but I know it's a if they have to leave their studio, it's going to work for me. But at the same time, I make it as pleasant as possible for sure. And, and it's financially, as beneficial for them as I can. But yeah, my work is very much like making movies for sure. It's like the ideas are once you figure out what you want to do, you know I mean I, I work a lot on the work myself for sure. I mean I I think of myself as as a white in relationship to Frankenstein. Put I turn it make be, it come alive, but but yeah, you know, I have my crew is like almost broken down like a film crew. There's they're just they're the guys that are fill in there are the guys that are finishers there are different categories of jobs for sure you know? i use i use that use the cinema as a kind of role model as to run in the studio yeah, for sure although All right. my the way i run my studio after reading our history books is not a whole lot different than rembrandt or rubens where i had like 140 people working for you know? wow you know so in that sense it's i'm not that out of whack with it
3: mr lago thank you so much for your time this has been so great talking with you my
4: pleasure no, you know the whole story. But when you <laughs> watch, well, well now when you watch the film you'll cry, Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs>
3: All right. We're back and we're talking about Johnny Mnemonic. And we've talked a little bit about some of the other versions that are out there, the extended version, theatrical version, black and white version. And I will recommend again, folks, there's a great site out there called movie-censorship.com. And they go through all of the beats of the theatrical versus the extended version, which is great. And they have screen grabs out there. They really do a good job with that. I'm, don't know if they'll compare the black and white version to the theatrical version, but last night I had the, I felt like such a loser. I had the extended version of the TV, I had the black and white version on my laptop and I would sync them up and let them play out. And then occasionally I would see, oh no, that's different or, oh, this is different. And with the black and white version, of course, the credits are different because of the way that they're doing on-screen credits on the old theatrical version which is very odd. It feels like the credit sequence goes on for the longest time and they hold all the credits until the end of black and white one, which I think is a lot better. But yeah, the black and white one really just does a good job. I never would have thought that just by, they don't just turn down the chroma, they regraded everything. And I've seen like the black and chrome version, I think it's called of the last Mad Max movie that Black and white version of Logan that's available on the Blu ray. But I have to say, this is probably one of the most effective versions of uh, seeing a movie in black and white that originally wasn't that way.
2: Yeah, I mean, pardon the pun, but it does color everything. I mean, I, I listened to the interview with, with Robert Longo and I, I was struck by he mentioned as a kid looking at you know Life magazine, all these magazines where he'd see things in color and that seemed fine. He liked color, but the the kind of things of pictures of the Vietnam War or like more. Hardcore reality was black and white always. So it's like to him, like black and white meant authenticity, which is kind of fascinating. So seeing that through that lens, like to me, watching the black and white version was like, wow, this feels so more real and more like no gloss, no I'm not being lied to. This is like okay, this is happening. It's like a documentary, which is kind of a fascinating way to watch this movie because it can be really campy and goofy at times. But damn, if I was like impressed by yeah every frame of it, yeah.
5: Like, I still feel like ideally it would have been something that was more tonally like Blade Runner, you know, where it was more, I don't know, just it had more of like a color identity. Like the black and white almost seemed like it was an easy way out, you know, that it like I'm interested in like how neo-noir uses color. Right. And if you look at a movie like Chinatown, how it uses color, you know, to still convey the noirness, but it's doing it with certain tones. And so I kind of feel like I would have wanted to have something more like that, where it just would have felt more sophisticated to me. You know, it's kind of like if you go back to another podcast that I did with you, like The Conformist, right? I mean, the way that they use color in The Conformist to represent the different locations, the different states of mind. I mean there's just there's so much potential there and by just kind of going to, you know, just sort of wiping it of color, it just feels a little bit like the easy way out. That said, if I had to choose between the two extremes, right? The 1995 version which, you know, we kind of said cheesy dated quality and then the black and white, yes, obviously I like the black and white better. But I still feel like it would have been nice. I mean, even if it's just like, um, you know, taking the colors and then just doing something with them tonally to make them, I don't know. I just, I would have liked the color, but maybe like a little bit more desaturated. I mean, that just would have been more interesting for me personally.
2: Mm-hmm. No, I totally care that. You know, in fact, I love that you said about neo noir. To me, noir is like the choosing the limitations. You know, Chinatown is a very example. It's a lot of like, Browns, because it's about a drought. It's about, you know, lack of water. It's just a, exactly. a very conscious choice. It's kind of wonderful. And my favorite year noirs do that. The kind of like a favorite of mine in the early 70s is Hickey and Bog. It's unbaked LA, but a very, it's a horrible sunbaked LA. You don't want to live there because it's such a weird, you know, dry place. I agree. You know, it, it was. Perhaps black and white is, it was a simple thing, a simple fix, or not simple. I'm sure it was. No,
5: it was, it, was it, it seems like a simple fix. It's one choice. That.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rather you know, than designing like around that kind of, okay. Because I mean, for me, as a, I'm a, a you know, a noir novelist, I, I love that you have limitations are what actually excite me. Like, okay, well, I can't do this, this, and this. I do a, a list. Okay. Know this, know this, know this. What else do you have in your palette? That to me is exciting. Cause like when you have everything, cool, you do everything you want. And that's the problem with, you know, computer effects. You can do whatever you want. You have a dinosaur on the moon fighting a, a spaceship. Cool. But what if you have like very little to work with? That to me is exciting. We have a noir story because that's a, noir is about life telling you, the universe telling you, no, fuck you, you can't do anything. You're trapped. What do you do now? That's that's great. So it I mean ties in imagine
5: that way. imagine if I mean if Blade Runner was in black and white, it would still be a cool looking movie, but it yeah. wouldn't be as cool as what they do with color. You know, and if you think about a David Fincher movie, you know, how much it would lose if it was in black and white, because so much of what he does is kind of like what you were saying It's he uses this limited color palette to create this sort of this blue grayness that's become almost like his brand. But it's like it just puts you in David Fincher world, whereas with black and white, it's like, oh, I get it. We're supposed to be noir, blah, blah, blah. So anyway. That was a very long-winded answer to your question, but it's like, yes, I I appreciate the black and white. You know, it definitely looks better than the original, but I still would have loved to see it in color, but maybe with some desaturation, you know, but that's, yeah, I just feel like there's more that could have happened that would have been interesting than, yes, it's maybe it took them a lot of time to get the right black and white, but it felt yeah. like they just pushed a button. Someone's going to come after me for that. No, no, no. I,
3: I hear you do that. <laughs> you mentioned earlier the whole idea of this taking place in Newark and that we start in Beijing and then we're in Newark and there, there is no transition between the two locations. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm kind of used to the idea of talking about Blade Runner that we get these megalopolises, right. That start over on the West coast, or maybe we get one on the East coast, you know, it goes from Boston all the way down to Atlanta or something. It just takes up the entire area, the whole Mm -hmm. entire Eastern seaboard. Great. But, the movie's defeated a little bit for me because this basically is a story that is being told in one night. You know, we have the information being loaded at one point. He wakes up at the beginning of the movie. He does fall asleep at one point during the movie and he's very upset. You let me sleep. But really this whole movie is supposed to take place over one night. And I think it kind of is defeated because of that transition. And we're suddenly like, boom, we're in Newark. And I'm like, well, what happened in between? And I don't need to see everything. I don't need to see him going to uh, whatever and buying a ticket and then going right. here. And we do get to see him you know, with the passport and everything coming into the country. But I'm very curious, how do you get there? What's the modes of transportation at this time?
5: I actually didn't realize at first when I was watching it that it was supposed to take place over 24 hours. right? Like it felt longer to me. And again, yeah, not to like, you know, beat a dead horse. But I feel like <laughs> with black and white, you don't get as much of a sense of passing time because it's not as obvious that it's morning, that it's afternoon, nighttime, whatever. And again, maybe that's just because of how it was filmed. But I don't know, like, to go back to The Conformist, I was just thinking about this scene on the train, you know, where they're going from Italy to Paris and you get the sense of the passing of time. Mm. And I feel like that's missing from this movie, which is why... Right. I felt, yeah, I wasn't really thinking about time, and I just kind of assumed that it was a couple days.
2: Right, it's always night. You're right because it's it's a one long night, but it can't all that action can't possibly fit in one night, right? I mean, it's he has at least two naps. He's like knocked out uh the the, the the surgeon's table, going to cut his head off, and later in the tunnel he is, sleeps again. Isn't a third instance where he falls asleep again? Uh, there were he's knocked out. There's like a lot of he you has know, the classic Nord t- Nord Fro being knocked out. When it was time, but yeah, it was a, the longest night ever. <laughs> there's a lot going on, well,
3: because even at the very end, when they're there, after they've let the secret out and they're looking at the the world is on fire, yeah, there's no hint of a sunrise, you know, no, that's what we should have. Is like the long night has passed. We are about to move into a new era, and we don't get that. We don't get that last bit of Griffin Dunn showing back up at work and walking into the office. You know, you don't get that last bit of, I'm trying to remember there was just another one that we were watching where you had a little bit of sunlight at the beginning, a little bit of sunlight at the end, and the rest is all one crazy night type of thing. This is, yeah, it's one crazy night, but it does feel like it's three crazy nights just all stitched together. Or that the world is so fucked up that there is no sunlight, but are we To know that i mean this isn't highlander too we don't get the whole explanation of the sky being scorched or something like in the matrix
5: but also what about the time flying from asia new york like how is it how does i mean that doesn't make any sense that it would be one night
3: that's the thing yeah like if we knew a little bit of that transportation does it do like total recall the remake where you fly (laughs) through the earth and show up (laughs) on the other side
5: Oh, yeah, this is sure. the future. So maybe he like teleports. Right.
2: It could actually, be. it's funny. This remind me of the opening line to uh, Neuromancer. You know, this is the same world. The very first line that speaks to this it says, I'll read this out, the sky above the port was the color of television tuned to a dead channel. So maybe in Gibson's world, wow. there is no morning or daylight ever. Like, I mean, maybe it is intentional that it was always, it's forever night. But I just, you guys are talking, I sparked this and like, oh, wow, okay, this is, you know, holy shit. Right. Maybe it's just Gibson land where, yeah, goodbye, son.
3: Well, because the whole thing of Johnny having the leak of the memory in his head is our ticking clock, but we never really get a sense of how long yeah. it's going to take for that total disruption to occur. You know, they never say, oh, if you don't get help within four hours, you're going to be dead.
2: So like, you say, do you have it's a couple days before you die? Remember the, the warning? Yeah. Was like, yeah. But that's days. right. So I, I presume I always thought it was like, about 48 hours the first day was in beijing there's travel time then it's a one long night the next day but that was just me trying to fill in the gaps like you like you said there's there's no explanation of that or you know information given
3: but despite all of the little things that i keep bringing up am i gonna keep watching this movie yeah
2: yeah i yeah let me ask mike what you and your wife what excites you about it like what is the thing that draws you back again and again to watch
5: it i mean it looks amazing (laughs) yeah again going back to the production design it looks amazing
3: does what brings me back is
0: i want room service i want the club sandwich i want the cold mexican beer i want a ten thousand dollar a night hooker
3: i love when he freaks out in the movie and it's like we've seen him emotional but he gets real emotional there and i just love that part i just crack up every single time it happens
2: I, I give you that. That's cool. Like also that. the
3: Henry Rollins, you know, the Just Johnny, all of that stuff, all of these character actors throughout this entire film just make it such a pleasurable experience for me. We don't
0: get much of that out here in Newark, Just Johnny. Kind of upscale for us, you know?
5: Yes. You're right. The character actors really help make it.
0: Yeah. I mean,
2: should we discuss the dolphin in the room? I was so surprised that Jones is in the original short story. He is. Yeah. I was going to say, that's not so Hollywood, but that's the part of the story. You know, that's kind of great. I don't oh, know. No. It was like. It's a fish. As he said. No, him. it's
5: a mammal. <laughs> right.
2: The version
3: you
5: guys
2: watch, did you see Ice-T give it drugs? Give Jones drugs? Oh no, that's out of it. And the story is heroin. The dolphin's hooked on heroin, which I loved. I missed yeah. that. He, that's in the extended version. Oh, it he does. Oh, yeah, oh, it gives him. Oh, it's not exactly. heroin, but it's
3: this like blue liquid that he oh, shoots okay, at the Jones. Okay. And they talk about how the government got him hooked on drugs
2: to do his the job. Yeah, the, yeah.
3: Um, makes him feel like he's swimming, is what Ice T says. Oh man, I wow, that. that's I,
5: messed up. It, it is. That is you
3: know, I mean, it's like Day of the um, Dolphin, you know, on heroin.
2: And do we know how? How you know the spoiler? But the uh, how how Jones the dolphin takes out the street preacher. With what, a mind laser? like, What is that? What is he doing exactly? Like the old Dina Meyer is turning the, the radar dish and he's challenging this energy beam from the dawn. Right. That wasn't explained at all, right? Or did I miss something?
5: Well, I think the idea is, is because remember, he's like almost entirely parts. Okay. You no, know? like he's been replaced with these like sort of cyborg elements. Okay. And so I thought that it was maybe some kind of like powerful, like magnetic waves oh. or whatever.
2: That makes sense
5: because and that's why it affected him and nobody else because he is all the
2: cyborg parts
4: Ah, oh
5: exactly and so it was somehow again i thought it was some kind of maybe a very powerful magnet or magnetic waves or whatever and that maybe Uh, you know was like pulling them out of his body you know like it's like going into an mri if you have metal in you
2: and it's Johnny because he had the implant in his head that was the whole that that was the hurting yeah okay that makes sense okay all right sorry sorry jones i need a (laughs) salt yeah (laughs)
3: <laughs> I love how Jones and Johnny team up in the story and that Jones, <laughs> yeah. it's hilarious because they describe these machines that can go in and extract information as squids, which is what they call the the creatures that the Matrix uses the Matrix. to hunt down people. Yeah, squiddies or squids, they call them. Yeah, yeah. But here they, these squids will go in and extract information that has otherwise been overwritten, and basically they are using all of that to learn about and eventually blackmail all the companies and all the people that ever used Johnny as a courier before. So yeah. That whole thing yeah. Ali, that you're talking about, as far as he has no access to that memory. Jones is the one that can go in there and just start pulling out all this data, which is hilarious.
2: Again, spoiler, a bummer in Neuromancer realized the fate of Johnny is revealed because Molly Millions talks about what happened to Johnny. He doesn't make it. Yeah. Oh, so no. it's kind of it's sad. Yeah. Yeah, Yakuza gets a some lab-grown-up assassin uh, from the Yakuza takes out poor Johnny and i so. Really? Bummer, yeah, that's a Neuromancer, yeah. I, I What I love uh-huh. about it is they, he was trying to lay track for a bigger, you know, Gibson verse for lack of a better term. But, like, I just love that. Yeah, I, I wish it, you know, had happened. We could have used that. Well, guess those they've those been models.
3: trying to bring Neuromancer to life for so many years. I know friend of the show, Vincenzo Natali, has been trying to do that. Oh, for so yeah, long. yeah long and i don't know how close he got but i mean i think they announced it a few times and then they've announced other people making neuromancer
2: as well and it's like okay great there are so many books that i i wonder if it's like you know it's a bummer or a blessing because like they're trying to make for instance alfred besters the star is my destination for decades literally decades beautiful novel i fuck i adore that novel but I worry that he'd screw it up somehow. They would just, they would just do something awful to it. So I, I kind of, you know, I I must not want to see it. And the the right hands, I'm kind of relieved that it's not been made yet. (laughs) Because the novel lives on. I want to
3: say that De Palma was almost going to do that
2: at one point. I think you're right. Really?
3: Yeah, I remember there are various versions of that script floating around. I don't know about the Neuromancer script, but definitely Starts by Destination has been there floating.
2: It's been a passionate project for many, many creators over the years. You know, many directors have tried it or try to get it going. And it's just, again, nothing beats to me that idea of like, you know, the, the words being beamed into your, into your eyeballs into your brain and making this move in your head, that to me is the optimal conditions for that kind of story. I'd love to see it just to see if they can pull it off, but rarely does it work. You know, when a beloved book or story, you know, make it that, way, that far.
3: Yeah. yeah. Pretty soon it'll be an HBO miniseries. Oh, sorry. HBO doesn't exist max. You mean it'll, it'll be a max miniseries.
5: <laughs> it's interesting. I just I just looked online, and yeah, it seems almost like it's been a cursed project that just version after version, and it just keeps bouncing from like person to person.
2: Is this a NeuroMancer or Stars? Oh,
5: NeuroMancer. No, sorry,
2: NeuroMancer. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure that it came out, they're trying to figure out how how he cracked this thing, how he cracked the cyberspace thing. Sounds sounds hot, but uh, yeah, no one's been able to do it.
5: How weird. I wonder why it keeps, because it seems like it would be such a great movie.
2: Pretty soon we'll be living it. Casting stuff, we've always the cast. I mean, a little bit the cast. It's it's a really great cast. I'm I'm impressed. I mean by,
5: but he apparently didn't really have any say in the cast. True, kind of depressing.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that is true. Mm -hmm. It's funny. He was very gracious in the interview. Dolph Lundgren was sort of forced upon him, but he actually saw a lot in Dolph's performance. He liked his performance. That was that was really cool. Who else was he sort of? And yeah, I think there
5: was all these... Keanu was kind of forced upon him
2: mm-hmm. when Val Kilmer dropped out. So I know Val Kilmer was on for the longest time. That would have been fascinating to see the Val Kilmer version. So I do like Val Kilmer a lot in these kind of roles. You know, I don't know.
5: And that they wanted him to use Keanu because he was hot from speed. Okay, but yeah, I didn't. I didn't get a sense. Like, do you think Rob Rolongo was like excited to work? I mean, it just felt like he didn't have any say in the casting.
3: I think you're right. Yeah. Well, it is interesting that when yeah. they did that black and white version they have an extra on the disc where it's canu gibson and longo all talking and they definitely feel like they're best of friends yeah oh which yeah it's nice you know all of these years later that they can sit down and still talk about this
2: that's great and keanu's obviously still a fan of the movie he loved I and mean, then he really is happy with what, how it turned out which is nice to hear I think Gibson's actually, was very much all years, years later, it seems like he kind of appreciates, you know, what was attempted at least. That was a cool interview. I watched that too. Yeah. That extra with the three of them talking, chatting, I guess it was from last year or two years ago.
3: Yeah. It feels like it was definitely shot during COVID. It was funny reading some of those articles about the making of uh, Johnny Mnemonic and they're talking about who was it? it was somebody was supposed to be making new Rose Hotel at the same time.
2: It was, um, Catherine Bigelow that's
3: right yeah which is funny because she ended up making strange days,
2: he days yeah
3: and then it ended up going over to abel ferrara they kind of knew at the time while they're writing it oh no it's coming yeah. to ferrara but we're not sure and then eventually i think three years after this it would come out in 98 which yeah i haven't seen i haven't seen i mean then i think didn't gibson write an episode of the x files i think so <laughs> I, I think, think so. so, and I think that's the all, only other thing of his that I've seen.
2: And plus recently, has the the the, the series, the yeah. embassy series uh, based on the Peripheral. That's I've watched it, but I've heard it's goodish. I think I've heard it's interesting. <laughs> Looks like he actually wrote two, two episodes. Of them. Yeah! Okay. Wow. From
5: season crazy. five and season seven.
2: Yeah, that's no. nice. That's cool.
5: Wow. That kill switch and first person shooter. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That rings a fade bell. All right. That's really cool. Yeah. And I want to go back and watch those two episodes. Yeah. I, at the time when I watched them, I didn't realize that he'd written them. That's no. very cool. And I like that he wrote the screenplay. I mean, again, we yeah, don't know yeah. what the original unedited version would have looked like, but I like that he, you know, because sometimes they just buy the rights and then, uh, you know, the original author has nothing to do with it. So I like that he was involved.
3: The one person we really had, thought, about is Dina Meyer. Oh, Yeah. I think she does a great job in this. And I really like, she seems kind of fearless in this role. She's not afraid to look ugly. She's not afraid to, you know, really get into the physicality of it. I was really down for what she was up to.
2: Yeah, I agree. It's funny. The one moment, it's not, it's not all about her performance. The one moment I'm sure is, is forced on by an exec that she's watching Keanu hack in his VR glasses are always hacking what are you doing? Like, all right, this is a woman who's had her body modified to the nth right. degree. Like, what are you doing? What, what's this hacking thing you're doing? It's like, come on. Like, come on. this is not, you know, a, a weird thing that he's doing right now. You know, I'm sure some execs saying, you have to explain hacking to the audience. They don't know what he's doing. Like, come on. She yeah. deserves better than that. Dina Meyer deserved better than that.
5: <laughs> <It> <laughs> reminded me of that moment in the first zombie movie, White Zombie, where you have the like the two tourists arrive in Haiti and they're like, what's that? And the guy driving the the right, like, right. the like carriage is like, those are zombies. And then, you know, he explains what zombies are. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I feel like whenever a character asks that kind of a question, it's, it's like, for our benefit, it's like, you know, the slow audience.
2: Totally. And I, I think that's just a kind of that burden. It's like, she's a badass assassin. She's wonderful. It's like, she wouldn't ask that question. She would know everything he's doing. Like, she'd be ahead of Keanu the entire time. So, but I thought, yeah, I thought her performance was wonderful. I actually met Dina Meyer years ago at a comic convention. Lovely. Very lovely. Very awesome. Loved her in the Starship Troopers. I thought she was awesome in that. Yeah, I don't think she's been in. I've been Do we in,
5: know uh, if, if Longo wanted her or if she was given to him by the studio?
2: That I'm not sure. It was her debut, so good question. Yeah. I don't know.
5: And then Barbara Sukova, always amazing. Yes. And Robert Longo's partner for I don't know how many years. That's right. Uh, so she was always a delight i'd forgotten that she was in it
2: weird yeah. actually i i know I about that this is minor but i got to bring it up anyway cuz i'm a dork um mm-hmm. robocop the tv series had a similar character the ghost and machine have you ever seen that robocop tv series where this former like employee was killed and her sort of her consciousness uploaded into the you know ocp computers And she would appear every so often to advise murphy on you know police work and such and i thought they went off from that or like was this floating around before that i mean it was kind of a weird thing like okay interesting ghost in the machine thing i, it was, I thought it was fascinating and at the end the big reveal right is that that's johnny's mom right am i misunderstanding that yeah oh, i mean okay. at least
5: in the at least in the footage that we see
2: that's implied or at least right, right? that's her i never like, got to make more of wow
5: well you see the video where he has his like or the scene, you know, where he has his childhood memory and it's Barbara Sukova. Yeah. Um, But I didn't know if that was, you know, the system or the Matrix, right? Exactly.
3: Playing tricks
5: on him and, you know, putting her in it, kind of like, you know, she'd been put in these other videos. So it was like, like, had she, was she like, you know, AI'd into his childhood memory? Yeah. Or was she actually his mother, which seems a little too, like, cutesy?
2: that's my question what, what is it yeah exactly one or the other is actually and if she was his actual mother mother how did he fall into this lifestyle of carrying being a human flash drive like what how did that happen that's right. a whole untold like did you just know that mike did you notice that i never noticed that that was
3: her in his memory so this... that's
5: what i thought it was i thought it was that she was like a i'd in
3: wow.
2: okay maybe that's what it
3: is to
5: show like how his memories had been manipulated and then like i mean i think One of the things that was kind of cool was the way that these characters would sort of just show up on these video screens, you know, that it was almost as like, you know, I mean, I feel like this is a a trope in numerous horror movies, right? Where it's like the evil spirit can use any screen as like a device to enter, you know, Any, any screen becomes a portal. And so I just kind of assumed that that's how she was like beaming herself into his memories.
2: Like Ice T pops up to say, you know, uh, "Free your mind, rock yeah. just, yeah. you know, <laughs>
5: Exactly, exactly. Yeah,
2: disappears. Yeah,
5: and Ralphie or whatever his name is seems to kind of keep showing up on these little monitors.
2: Yeah, right. that yeah.
3: That's cool. how we're introduced to a lot of characters is through that way.
5: And it's funny because I, I mean, this is yeah. just from living in New York, but it just always reminds me of those little monitors in the cabs that oh, like yeah. those little TVs.
3: Yeah,
5: and it's just funny because God, it, I,
3: it's not Jimmy Fallon.
5: it's like you get in the cab and it starts talking to you and then you're like scrambling to figure out how to like turn down the volume but it's just that's what it just felt like it's like these like ghostly forces keep like beaming in through all these different monvers which is cool go back and watch the childhood scene because it's it's her as his mom okay
3: yeah i definitely will. well i always felt that her role was a little thankless because most of the time she just shows up and goes takahashi shame on you right <laughs> what are you doing
5: don't you realize <laughs>
3: yeah it's like okay yeah, yeah. The,
5: but maybe she was maybe her role was larger you know in the original version i feel what I, I feel i think
2: it was right there is yeah, yeah. No, we're talking, yeah?
5: You know. i just made that up but yeah no,
2: no no i think you're right i think this is the interview there was a lot more to that role that was cut out right yeah. like, to me, I mean, you talked to, to to robert about this
3: yeah and there's definitely extra stuff in that longer version too i i really recommend that longer version Uh, it does clear up some things and has some some good bits to it too it's like we get more of takahashi and his um shinji shows up more times and he shows up at one point with two of the white guys that are on his team and we see earlier that takahashi has all of these yakuza tattoos and at one point he's like hey shinji you screwed up not once but twice and he murders the two white guys and then he cuts the buttons off of their shirts and he opens up one of the guy's shirts and he's like what's that and shinji's like oh tattoos and he goes misspelled i'm like oh that's nice (laughs) that these guys are fake yakuza with misspelled tattoos that's pretty great
2: that's a nice nice yeah it's
3: nice. yeah but
5: it seems to yeah. be on brand it is
3: it is and yeah you get his little monitor on his desk at one point gets hacked by j-bone and you definitely get more of the sakawa character talking at him and you know yeah, kind of yeah. riding on him for being a jerk so yeah there's definitely a lot more of this stuff and yeah i, I kind of wish that Longo had taken a look at why don't we look at all of the footage rather than just what was released and maybe tweak some more stuff because there are some good bits to it. Oh, I going like, yeah. to
5: say that I, I had assumed yeah. that the new version was going to be longer. I didn't, right. like, I was I was surprised that all he did was sort of change the color.
2: Yeah, same here. I mean, it was, yeah, we take the extended cut, do the black and white thing there, the optimal cut. But I, I think that the extended cut isn't a problem with quality. Like, it's all uh, standard definition, not high definition, I think so. Yeah. That I, maybe it's not possible.
3: And there is a fourth version out there that I just want to talk about for sake of completeness. There was a fan editor God. who took the entire movie and cut it down to about 25 minutes and it made <sighs> it feel like a TV show. That was wow. just kind of this like um, oh, yeah. a mnemonic on a case kind of thing. It's not very effective. I'm okay. not a fan, but had I never seen Johnny Mnemonic before, maybe I would have been okay with it, but. Yeah, I would have shared it with you guys, but it was like, it was a huge file to download and I didn't want to burden your (laughs) your servers with that because it was like, I don't know how many gig and I'm like, this is 30 minutes long. This should not be this long. Is it coherent?
2: Did you follow it or is it?
3: It's pretty choppy. It's pretty choppy. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like people have taken at the apes and tried to cut it down into a twilight zone episode it's like mm, this doesn't really work and sometimes they'll take a star trek movie and cut it down to episode length and then they might yeah. even add like old sound effects and things it's kind of like one of those where you're like yeah it, maybe that was a good idea but you didn't really execute it that well
5: we've been talking about how we want the movie to be longer right. exactly. <laughs> you know how it is already too choppy like don't take more out of it
2: exactly yeah. you gotta see the um the version of the langoliers that was sort of re-edited and chopped down i was like the miniseries the chopped the stephen king's miniseries the langoliers was chopped down to an hour basically oh. and it was black and white and it was also weird cutting effects like they actually animated kind of weird parts of it it was in like theaters for a second last year it was wow. fascinating but like it flew by too fast it was like almost like you don't really have that lived an experience of a, you know, proper length movie. Uh, it was, that mm-hmm. was the same thing. It just felt you know, the flew by in a blur, you know?
3: Right. Right. Well, speaking of black oh, and white, dear. the mist was the other one where I think oh, they oh, like right. wanted to do that in blood right. and white and ended up doing it in color. And I think they released the black and white version, which for me kind of goes back to the old monster movies. Again, you know, it definitely feels more like a, almost like a universal monster movie rather than. Yeah, was. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, let's go ahead and we're going to take another break and we're going to play a preview for next week's show.
5: With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
5: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.
0: No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
5: <laughs> Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Would you fasten your seatbelt, please? We're about
1: to land. And keep it fastened, for you are about to be jolted into a new realm of suspenseful terror.
0: Who are you? What do you want? <laughs>
1: Your destination, a house on a lonely stretch of beach in France. Time, the night of the following day. Oh, please, please, let me go! Nothing grips the imagination. Nothing matches the excitement. Nothing builds in suspense. Like a good, hard-hitting crime movie. And here is one of the best. Shut up! Listen to me, man. If you want to get freaky, you don't do it with her. The night of the following day, fear seeks a way out. I want out of this thing, man! You're crazy! You're going to get us all killed! Brando. Here's the old magic, the romantic star, the lean adventurer, hungry for excitement. Richard Boone, here and now, the living image of a sadistic killer. Don't let anything happen to my little girl. The night of the following day, love seeks a way out, and a kidnapped girl sees no way out. I got him on the line. On the line, but no one is off the hook. Look, this is gonna be a one-way
4: conversation.
1: You listen, you understand? Just listen. All I've got is this old girl and old her. <laughs> if I come back and I find that she's not all right, I'm going to take that burp gun and I'm going to jam it up your nose and I'm going to pull the trigger till it doesn't work anymore. As sure as night follows day, this startling motion picture will create a new must see, a compelling must know about what happens to all of these people in the different and daring crime thriller, The Night of the Following Day.
3: That's right. We're kicking off a month of requested movies with a look at Night of the Following Day. Until then, I want to thank my co-hosts, Dwayne and Dalias. Dwayne, what is the latest with you, sir?
2: Actually, I'm very proud to say I have a, a my first uh, short story collection is out. It's called Lush and Other Tales of Boozy Mayhem. It actually has a Keanu connection. Um, the title story Lush was optioned by Chad Stahelski, who directed the John Wick film. So I'm one degree away from Keanu, kind of. Well, sort of. Anyway, uh, so... That's, I'm very proud of that. You can buy that. It's online through uh, Cimarron Street Books. And also uh, the same place, I have a, a column I've started writing for Bare Bones Magazine called A Field Guide to L.A. Pulp, where I kind of find a favorite writer and trace their working locations, their their their, their drinking locations, and their final resting places sometimes, as they told here in Los Angeles. So I'm very proud of that.
3: And Dali, how about yourself?
5: The bar's been set really high by Dwayne. I feel a little bit guilty because my writing has sort of taken a backseat because I've been very busy with my day job, where I am now the new chair of the film department at FIT in New York, which is really kind of exciting because it means that I have the opportunity to, you know, put all these different initiatives into play. And so I've just been kind of distracted by that. I am working on an essay about the Black Dahlia for this true crime anthology, And I'm going to be arguing that her murder and the way that it was covered really sort of launched the true crime phenomenon as we know it. Hopefully, that will be written by the time this podcast comes out.
3: Are you still working on that proposal for a book about memory?
5: Yes, yes. So I I have to write the Black Dahlia essay, and then I have to write a chapter about sort of like the history of zombie films for a different anthology, and then I get to go back to memory. But yes, my next book is going to be about memory and sort of its impact on film and television narrative and what that says about the sort of cultural and social erosion of memory in our real lives off screen. That is the next book, and it has sadly been neglected, but I am hoping to bring it back front and center once I finish these other two chapters.
2: That sounds awesome. I'm looking forward to the chapter on Johnny Mnemonic. Obviously, have a whole chapter about Johnny, so I, I gotta presume, right? Because it's memory. I mean,
5: it would be. I it has to it has to show up in the the book on memory because I mean, it is it plays a awesome. part in it, you know, and sort of the relationship of technology to memory and this idea that you know, and in, and this is true that we don't have to memorize things the way that we used to because of our reliance on technology and the idea that he literally doesn't have room in his brain for his actual childhood memories because he has data instead is I have to unpack that, but it's fascinating. So maybe there will be a chapter on John.
3: Yeah. Speaking of mnemonic devices. I mean, I don't know how many younger people know some of the mnemonic devices that we know thinking about like the names of the planets or the colors of the rainbow or any of those kind of things. And it's just now they just look it up. Yeah, we right. don't have to worry about that. And our mnemonic devices have changed over the years, too. I mean, I grew up with nine planets. Kids these days have eight planets.
2: Mm, that's true. Wow. Every good boy does fine. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, good my, boys do fine always. Yeah. Yeah.
5: Yeah. Roy G. Biv. Yeah. I mean, my, yes. I, yeah, mnemonic devices were very important.
3: Yeah. A rat in the house may eat the ice cream
5: i don't know that
3: one that's that's how you spell arithmetic well thank you so much folks for being on the show thanks to everybody for listening if you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth check out some of the other shows that i work on they are all available at weirdingwaymedia.com thanks especially to our patreon community if you want to join the community visit patreon.com slash projection booth every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world